Good afternoon and welcome to our third and final collaborative-wide meeting for music for this year. I'm Kurshid Ghani and for the next 10 minutes or so, I'm just going to take you through a couple of updates and highlights from music. Uh, I will also discuss the latest on the value-based reimbursement metric from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. I will talk about a new effort that we have in music in terms of how to better report decision-making and understanding quality better in the operative notes. And then I'm going to introduce today's session where we have a fabulous lineup of important talks all impacting uh, patient care to the benefit of patients in this state. Music's uh, mission is to make Michigan the best place in the world for urologic care. And our purpose is to improve the lives of patients in this state and beyond. And we're very fortunate to have the support of 46 practices throughout the state with over 260 urologists involved and with the partnership of 12 patient advocates. And over the last 10 years, our work has now um, increased into areas of kidney stone and kidney cancer care. And you can see that our registry holds a rich amount of data and we have multiple quality initiatives in these domains. A couple of uh, progress uh, items to report. For the Prostate Cancer Initiative, I'm proud to say that we're uh, through uh, starting our NIH-sponsored randomized clinical tr control trial called G-Major with the aim of um, uh, understanding the clinical utility of genomics in newly diagnosed fabal risk prostate cancer. For kidney stone care, we've been disseminating our music rocks resources on stent emission appropriateness guidelines, on a new urethral stent education video that's been made in conjunction with the Urology Care Foundation, as well as a post-surgery discharge checklist, all with the goal of reducing modifiable emergency department visits after urethroscopy. And for the kidney cancer group, uh, there will soon be a life expectancy calculator available on our Ask Music website. So you can um, estimate the life expectancy of, for patients with small renal mass. And we hope that this will help optimize treatment appropriateness. During the last six months, despite the pandemic, the music team have been hard at work and we've had 11 papers in peer-reviewed uh, press disseminating our findings. And some highlights are here. There's been a paper on the impact of genomic testing on outcomes in music. Uh, the kidney group have published their work on uh, partial nephrectomy, um, whether it should be classified as an inpatient procedure. And the ROCS team have published on the data on emergency department visits and how urethral stent placement increases the odds of an ED visit after urethroscopy. I'd like to now tell you about the value-based reimbursement program from Blue Cross Blue Shield. And this is an uplift payment that Blue Cross will pay for any Blue Cross related uh, uh, work because of the value that we add into the quality of care for patients. And the things that we've been tracking that provide an extra 3% in payments for urologists across the state are around salvage radiation and imaging after urethroscopy. And I'm pleased to report that the current performance for these metrics are in our target alignment. And if we keep going the way we have, we should be able to get this 3% uplift payment. Blue Cross have also supported a further 2% extra payment for uh, target measures around these things here that you see on the slide, on active surveillance follow-up, on ED visits after urethroscopy and chest imaging for renal masses. 
And I'm also pleased to say that we're also in current performance for these targets. And if things keep going the way they are, we should, as a state, receive an extra 5% additional VBR payment for 2022. And for 2023, we have some new value-based reimbursement measures as noted on the slide here. And they are around urinalysis testing before urethroscopy with the goal that better care in this domain will improve outcomes and especially reduce sepsis after urethroscopy. And the second measure is opioid-free radical prostatectomy discharge. And we're hoping to be better stewards of opioid-free prescription in the state. And you can see some current performance metrics that are happening right now and our target performance. And both of these subjects will be discussed later on in our webinar today by both Dr. Dow and Dr. George and other members of the ROCs and prostate teams. The additional VBR measures for 2023 are listed here, and we're moving salvage radiation therapy and imaging metrics into the additional bucket. And we're adding in a new measure around opioid prescriptions for shockwave lithotripsy with a, um, a target performance of only 25% of patients requiring opioids after shockwave. And the current performance for that is 39%. And this is something that we'll be discussing in more detail at one of our future collaborative meetings. And finally, uh, 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 efforts by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan across all the collaboratives in Michigan have introduced a new value-based reimbursement measure. Uh, and this is an extra 3%, and this is around smoking cessation. And we're gonna be asking practices to identify and ask patients if they smoke and help them quit smoking through our patient reported outcome system for patients undergoing radical prostatectomy. We're hoping to provide you more details of this coming up next year when we have our next meeting, but this is a really exciting development uh, for patients in the state. Hopefully it will allow us to uh, reduce smoking statewide. And as urologists, we can contribute to this important discussion. At our last collaborative meeting, Dr. Monty closed the meeting speaking about um, his what he called the Monty challenge. And in other words, doing better to report the nuances in surgical decision-making in the, in the notes um, as we provide patient care. And according to him, quality is considering and articulating all options in a particular care setting and then deciding with the patient on a pathway, relying on the best opinion. And what we're trying to do in music is better understand those nuances of decision-making. So we've asked, all the three programs to pick one encounter and develop a reporting template where we can understand the decision-making around active surveillance versus watchful waiting, or the decision-making around stent placement at the time of urethroscopy, or the decision-making on, on kidney um, mass management, whether a partial nephrectomy or radical nephrectomy is the appropriate choice or surveillance. And we're hoping to get back to you on, on these templates in the near future. So for today's meeting, we're going to have uh, talks on prostate and we're going to hear from Dr. Um, Alice Samergian and Dr. George, as well as Kevin Ginsberg, Mo Jaffrey and Craig Block, who's our patient advocate. And we're going to hear about new efforts to report outcomes after radical prostatectomy and reducing readmissions after this operation. The ROCS team, led by Dr. Dow, We'll be speaking about uh, preoperative urine uh, testing for urethroscopy, and we'll hear from Dr. Rene Frontera from the MIU group 
providing their perspectives on this. And we're fortunate to have the nursing care perspectives provided by Truly Rikes. Um, and this should be an enlightening session, especially as we understand uh, some of the risk factors for sepsis for urethroscopy. And then we're going to close with the kidney team led by Dr. Rogers and Dr. Butaini at Henry Ford, who will speak to us about some of the recent data in music on outcomes and complications after partial and radical nephrectomy and better ways of reporting this. And we're joined in that session by Taylor Peoples, who is a PA at Henry Ford Hospital, as well as Cheryl Sitko, a patient. And so on that note, I'd like to thank you all for joining another collaborative wide meeting. Please be involved in the chat, provide as many discussion and ask our panel and our members as much as possible. We can't learn without hearing your perspectives and contributing to the discussion. So I'd like to thank you and I'd like to pass it on to Dr. Samergian to begin the prostate session. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Dr. Ghani. The prostate group will be presenting in two areas aimed at optimizing perioperative outcomes. I will first discuss Notes 2.0, followed by Dr. George and his discussion on the opioid-free post-prostatectomy pathway. Music has historically focused attention on hospital readmission rates after prostatectomy. Here's a look at the decrease in admission, readmissions with the initiation of several QI initiatives. Over time, the readmission rate has decreased from about 5% in 2017 to 3.9%. Patient education materials such as the music Ilias pamphlet and radical prostatectomy educational video inform patients of expected perioperative events. High volume and high performing practices were interviewed to understand factors contributing to readmissions and ways to decrease them. Additionally, lower readmission rates followed implementation of the MPOP opioid limiting pathway. And we look forward to see further progress after implementation of opioid free pathways. In addition to readmissions, MUSIC has also been collecting data on metrics listed here through NOTES, which stands for Notable Outcomes and Trackable Events After Surgery. The uncomplicated recovery pathway was defined as surgery, which did not involve rectal injury, no high blood loss, length of stay less than or equal to two days, uh, drain placement less than or equal to two days, catheter placement less than or equal to 16 days, no catheter replacement, and no 30-day readmission or mortality. Recently, we've taken a critical look at notes and challenged whether these metrics uh, are actually leading to improved quality of perioperative care. Several of these existing metrics were brought into question. Notes had been developed with the goal of raising quality of care and reducing adverse events. The metrics that were captured in notes initially were looking at deviations from normal perioperative course, but the question remains whether these reflect outcomes that are significant to the patient. With the advent of Notes 2.0, we're looking to make more of a QI impact in areas that are truly meaningful and ultimately impact complications and morbidity related to surgery. In the process of thinking about these clinically significant outcomes uh, and what they would include, we looked at other national QI databases such as NISQIP for guidance and ideas. Harkening back to Dr. Monty's words, we're looking only to collect data that is needed to give information that'll lead to action to improve outcomes. The Prostate Working Group organized a call comprised of 11 prostate cancer surgeons and two patient advocates. We brainstormed several ideas that were proposed, and with the feedback of the group, these were narrowed down to include the most meaningful and useful data. Ideas that were not used include infectious complications, wound issues, antibiotic prescriptions, and replacement of EBL with transfusion events. 
We recognize that it's key to weigh the burden of data abstraction with the benefit gained from that data. Keeping in mind the difficult job our abstractors have of tracking down some of this clinical information that may be deeply embedded in the patient's chart. So rectal injury was removed. Since this is so rare, it was felt that even though it's a very significant event, uh, it's not something that warrants recording on every patient as it's unlikely that this will influence a process change leading to decreased rates. Additionally, EBL was removed as a metric. Large EBL was also relatively a rare event. We entertained the idea of shifting EBL to transfusion instead, but when questioning the working group as well as the patient advocates, even a large blood loss resulting in transfusion is unlikely to cause significant complications that's felt by the patient. Drain placement was also shifted from less than or equal to two days to no drain present at discharge. This was proposed by one of our patient advocates. In length of stay, less than or equal to two days is kept. We looked at our existing data and saw that greater than 90% of the discharges were on post-op day one or two, and a very small minority of patients were discharged on the same day of surgery. Future attention will be geared towards looking at the effect of same-day discharge on opioid prescribing and readmissions. Two new metrics were proposed, and they were received pretty enthusiastically by the working group. The first of these is measuring DVT and PE events. These events can have very serious, possibly deadly uh, consequences. Most of these patients have at least moderate risk for VTE based on their age, the use of robotic surgery, the fact that it's pelvic surgery, and that they carry a cancer diagnosis. And we heard in our working group call that there's significant variability in the use of prophylaxis, ranging from surgeries, surgeons who use no chemical prophylaxis to those using a month's worth of chemical prophylaxis after discharge. Previous studies have been done, but at best, these are single institution studies with only a few surgeons represented. Music has a unique cohort and opportunity to give a real uh, real world look at VTE events. And lastly, we proposed introducing 30 day ED visits as a metric. Currently we're tracking hospital admissions, but we have no data on ER visits. It's important for payers, uh, patients, families, hospital staff, ER, uh, especially in the context of increase, increasingly full ERs. Um, and we're aiming to identify causes for ER visits and focus future QI initiatives and patient education to decrease those preventable visits. Illustrated here is the new notes 2.0 from the time of surgery through 30 days following surgery. We hope that this will give us some useful, actionable information moving forward. We'll now introduce some of our participants from the working group call for more discussion. Thank you. Hey, hello, everybody. We'd like to uh, first direct your attention to two things. One is the poll on Hopin. Uh, it's asking whether or not you routinely use DVT and PE prophylaxis. And the other is if you can direct all your questions to the Q&A box, uh, that would be very helpful. In addition to that, now that you've heard the presentation, we'd like to hear if there's any parts of this, you know, metrics that we have decided to exclude uh, that anyone thinks should be left in, or if there's additional metrics that you think would be important for us to track in music moving forward. Love to hear your opinion. Um, so let's start with some of our panelists here. Uh, you know, first, we'll start talking about DBT and PE prophylaxis um, from the prostatectomist. What is your routine practice? Dr. Ginsburg, can you take us three years? Um, 
How about Dr. George? Yeah, so um, while, uh, while uh, Dr. Ginsburg is just um, getting set up, um, uh, I will say that what I use, I'm not sure that we're necessarily consistent across all, uh, all providers in our practice, uh, but I give everybody preoperative heparin. Uh, I know that the variation is, you know, at least in our, our group is, is some will give it postoperatively uh, versus preoperatively. Um, and then uh, others will look at a the, the VTE risk score and then give it based on and administer um, prophylaxis based on the based on the score. Um, and you know, certainly that is probably the the um, the, 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 the most evidence-based way of doing it, but oftentimes the addition of, it, uh, of that extra set makes it, it such that it, it What about you, Dr. Joffrey? Uh, for all my uh, prostatectomy patients, they'll get SEDs, and then I do pre- and post-operative heparin. Uh, you know, if they're admitted, I continue their heparin post-op. Um, you know, differently than I do for cystectomies, you know, cystectomies, I'll actually discharge them home, uh, for a month of Lovenox, uh, post-op at home as an outpatient, but for prostatectomies, I just do it while they're in the hospital. Absolutely. Any downsides that you see? Is anyone concerned about bleeding, uh, when it comes to giving prophylaxis? Are there any patients that you would choose not to give prophylaxis to? I can, I can answer that. I feel like, when I give heparin in this, when it's a little bit oozy, I'm like, hmm, maybe it was a heparin. Uh, but when it doesn't, I'm like, see, look what we can do. We can do it with heparin, you know? So I, I think that, I don't know if there's a right answer to that. Uh, I, I do think there's data supports that supports that there's not an increased risk of transfusion or bleeding events or those kind of things. But it's very hard to look, you know, large, there, there isn't really large scale pros, prospective data to identify what's the optimal dosing, regimen, timing, uh, those are things that, you know, questions that music could potentially answer. I completely agree with you, Ivan. I think that we're going to be... Kevin, you, do, you guys do something unique at, at, at uh, execution, right? What, prolonged prophylaxis? That's true. So people get Lovenox preoperatively, postoperatively while in the hospital. They actually get sent home with 28 days of, of Lovenox. And, you know, we, we saw something similar on the working group call. There's you know, for as many different surgeons, there are opinions, and I think music will be uniquely positioned to really help move the entire kind of prostatectomy field forward with the answers that we find about what and how we can define optimal prophylaxis in this group. What what prompted that decision? It seems like, you know, a lot of us when we were on the working group call were like, oh man, that seems like overkill. Uh, though it's something that we routinely do during cystectomy and, and other major operations, uh, uh, what what was what was the, the the was there any particular data or events that happened at the at your own institution that prompted this change? There there was a PE unfortunately that resulted in uh, a mortality, which is you know I, I think unacceptable in a, a group of young, healthy, 50, 60 year old men. We're asking them to assume a lot of risks of surgery uh, for a delayed benefit with extending their lives when they're you know 70, 80. So uh, I just we want to make sure that we're doing the surgery in the safest way possible and trying to minimize you know the the potential harms of surgery, whether that be DVTPE or opioid addiction. Um, you know, there's many areas that we can help make this surgery safer. Absolutely. Uh, moving on to readmissions, what um, 
do you all do in your practice to prevent readmissions or reduce readmissions? Are there music uh, pamphlets or resources that are routinely used or, you know, what kind of things have been, have you seen decrease the, the risk of people coming back to the hospital or even the ER? We'll open it up to the ER also since one of the, that's one of the newer things that we're going to be looking at. And, and right before I answer that uh, question first, um, I just want to uh, have just another plug for the poll. Um, for those of you who are on Hopin, please uh, answer the poll. We really want to get a sense for those who do use prophylaxis and not. And second, put your questions in the Q&A box rather than the chat. And so, uh, so Alice, your question was, you know, what, what do we use to, to reduce readmissions? Um, I think that, you know, having a, having a, a, a hand in, um, in being able to having a hand in being able to do uh, create some of the resources, I feel obligated to use them. So we do have the Tammy Ilias pamphlet out and we do use the video routinely uh, for patients. Um, whether or not that's gonna have an impact on readmissions, that's Okay, we actually have a couple questions here. So uh, starting with one from Dr. Salami, is there an increased risk of uh, symptomatic lymphocele with prolonged DVT prophylaxis? I guess that's a question for you, Dr. Ginsburg. Uh, I'm not aware. I know, um, you know, the Hopkins group, kudos to them for this really extraordinary lift. You know, they ran a, a small trial doing sub-Q heparin versus just mechanical prophylaxis. And one of their exploratory aims was they did get um, on a subgroup of this population, they did get ultrasounds to assess for um, subclinical lymphocytes. And I don't think there was any signal there. So, um, I'm not aware of any data that suggests that prophylaxis or extended chemical prophylaxis can lead to increased uh, incidence of lymphocele, but something that we should keep an eye on as we start to mature this data in music. Definitely. So that's not something you've seen with a 30-day prophylaxis? No. No. Okay. All right. Uh, another question for patients with prior history of DVT or who are undergoing cancer treatments, are there any practices performing preoperative imaging to assess for chronic clot burden? Um, you know, at least in my practice, no. Anyone else, Dr. Joffrey? Dr. No. Okay. All right. Sorry for that break. Back to, to readmissions. Anyone, um, any, any other takers on that question? Dr. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think what, what music highlights, and I think even just going way back to Jim Dupree, you know, kind of starting the whole discussion on the ileus pathways, I think just, you know, I, I think commonly as we have in all of this is just kind of patient expectations and patient counseling. And, and you know, thankfully, prostatectomies, it's either outpatient for some or for the most of the people that are in the hospital for a day. And so you actually don't have as much time as you think in terms of counseling. And so I think, um, you know, that initiative for music, I think, highlighted the importance of kind of really explaining to people or explaining to patients what's a routine or expected post-operative course, what's normal, what's not normal, what are certain milestones or timings that you're going to certainly expect, um, you know, progress. And, and so to me, you know, hopefully that's where I feel like, you know, the plan plus come, but even just highlighting the need to have that discussion, uh, I think has helped. Um, and then separately, I think, which we might get into later is just all the different adjunctive treatments that we're trying to do. We're trying to help with pain control. Uh, I think is a factor as well. Definitely. I think that's a huge factor. Is is anyone doing same-day discharges or has it done any same-day discharges throughout the course of the pandemic, for example? Has anyone done those? And if... if no. 
Yeah, we haven't done it yet. We've had, you know, we've we've started a discussion, you know, understanding that um, I, I tried to do it, and then uh, then I, I think it was a little bit short sighted. You know, I that afterwards I understood that there is a lot that happens on the back end that that you know that I was kind of unaware. I did a prostatectomy. Prostatectomy went really well. I said, hey, you know, maybe this is a good guy. He lives close by, very responsive, responsive patient. He's motivated. He wants to go home, home, home himself. But then there's questions regarding who delivers the edu education. At what time do they deliver the education? Um, uh, some other issues that, that arose as well, just regarding the logistics of it and realizing that if we want to do that, um, at, at least we need to have a, a more like um, a planned out and strategic a, a approach rather than kind of doing it uh, really nearly. And then maybe understanding, you know, are there specific criteria and if patients meet these criteria that they should, they should be able to uh, be discharged same day. And, you know, I don't think that we have a process in place like Dr. Abaza uh, does when he presented at the skill session where, you know, he has a card and, you know, they have a very streamlined system and all that most likely they, they, they refined it. Um, uh, I think it's a work that we're hoping to do at Michigan Medicine, at least. For, for me, I did it in a handful of people kind of May and June 2020, you know, when you're worried about hospital beds, you're worried about, you know, patients just being in the hospital. Uh, and so it, it took a little bit more kind of discussion. I had people that were very motivated to do it. Uh, you know, my bias actually is the opposite. Like I, I you know, you know, the burden then comes on all the caregivers that are at home. And so I don't push it. Uh, if a patient wants it, I think it's feasible and I think it's fine. And, 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 and the right person, it's there. Uh, I like first case, you know, the first case one, I think is easier to do that because then you can kind of keep monitor them in the hospital for a couple hours. It's easier to do than if you're doing a second case. Uh, so I've done it and it's doable. Um, but am I pushing people to do it? Not necessarily. We have a comment from Dr. Lane that says uh, he has done it and it's working fine for selected patients who are very motivated. Um, we have another question uh, from someone practicing out in a rural region. Patients sometimes present post-op to the ERs there um, and they're picked up uh, afterwards. Is there a way to add these ER visits in during the data extraction from our clinic visits? That's an interesting question. We'll have to talk to our, our data abstractors about that and our uh, database managers about that. I'm, I'm not sure. Dr. George, do you know if that would be a possibility? You know, if it's not at the same institution, for example, if they're going referred to you and go back to their uh, urologist. Is there a way to extract that data? Um, I, that I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. We'll have to check in on that. Yeah. We'll have to look into that. Okay. And then another anonymous question, what's the impact on reimbursement on same day discharge? Anyone know about that? I think that, you know, it's really gonna be, I don't think there's gonna be a difference in reimbursement, but it's like, a, you know, utilization of resources, um, having, uh, you know, from a hospital-based perspective, having one a, a bed free for an extra night allows for an additional patient to be, uh, be taken care of and admitted. And, and that's where there may be a, a benefit. Yeah, particularly relevant these days. Um, okay, we're just about to wrap up. Uh, if anyone has any other questions that they want to have addressed, um, otherwise we'll turn it over uh, back to Dr. George for opioid free. 
Thanks, Alice. That was a great discussion. We're going to shift gears a little bit now and revisit our progress on opioid-free prostatectomy in the MPOP pathway. So as you may remember, we implemented MPOP for radical prostatectomy uh, around three years ago with the opioid-limited pathway to begin with really aiming to provide only six pills of oxycodone um, and a goal of less than 10% of patients requiring a prescription refill. Additionally, we wanted to ensure that these patients were enrolled in PROS so that we could specifically uh, track the impact of pain control with a PRO one month survey. Um, one year ago, in October of 2020, uh, we transitioned to the opioid-free pathway statewide after, after we saw some encouraging pilot data from the University of Michigan. And to date, this has been generously supported by a modifier 22 by Blue Cross Blue Shield. But as we know, all good things must come to an end. Uh, but we hope that the changes in opioid prescribing patterns will not only be durable, uh, but will also that we will have continued momentum once the 22 modifier uh, is, um, is retired uh, at the end of this year. So what have we seen to date? Before MPOP was introduced, only 12% of patients were not sent home with an opioid prescription. There was, there was wide variability in the number of pills prescribed, but the median number of pills was approximately 10, <coughs> excuse me, and all, only 5% of those patients required a refill. Now, after implementation of the opioid limited pathway, 19% of patients were discharged without any opioids at all, but when opioids were prescribed, um, the, the medium was only six pills given without any significant changes in refill requests either. Now, subsequently, over the last year, with the implementation of the opioid-free prostatectomy pathway, we've really seen tremendous progress. Now, 44% of patients who undergo radical prostatectomy are discharged home without any opioids at all. Again, in those who did receive an opioid prescription, the median number of pills stayed pretty constant um, at six pills, and only 6% uh, of patients required a refill. Of those who did not receive any opioids, so of that 44% of patients who did not receive any opioids uh, at the time of discharge, only 3% required a new opioid prescription. What this supports is that our alternative uh, pain control st strategies are effective, uh, at least uh, in that patients are not calling and asking for additional opioid medications due to their severity of pain in the immediate postoperative period. As a result, this means that more than 800 patients have been able to avoid opioids completely, and we've kept more than 16,000 opioid pills out of the community every year. Moving forward, we want to further reduce our reliance on opioids for postoperative pain management, and consequently the number of uh, new persistent opioid users, but also given the physiologic effects of opioids on GI function, there is a potential to reduce modifiable readmissions such as ileus. 30-day readmissions in opioid-free patients is currently at around 2.4%, and for those who receive opioids, it's about 4.06%. Now, this could be due to a, a variety of things such as case complexity or a rocky postoperative course that requires additional pain control. However, it is something that we will continue to follow closely. 
Certainly, the use of uh, opioid-free enhanced recovery pathways, such as employed during uh, cystectomy, has, had de has demonstrated multiple benefits. But we are far from our goal, and there is a large room for improvement. And we're not asking providers to do this blind, and MUSIC has developed important provider and patient-facing resources. There is uh, a provider placket, which suggests alternative pain management strategies, uh, such as NSAIDs and anticholinergics, lidocaine patches, peridium. Um, for patients who have, uh, so for patients, we have developed a, a pamphlet in collaboration with MOPEN that educates patients and sets expectations for postoperative pain management. Finally, we still encourage pro-enrollment so that we can track closely the impact of these changes that we're making on the patient's experience. As we know, there is always huge practice level variation. Here we can see a bubble plot where the size of the bubble reflects uh, a practice's radical prostatectomy volume. And we can, here we can see variation in opioid prescribing uh, across practices that range from 0% to more than 75%. We can see that there are high volume practices that can achieve high rates of opioid-free prostatectomy at discharge. And this is mainly due to implementation of processes that make the opioid-free pathway the default with medication only given if patients require a greater degree of pain control when the alternative strategies that we have outlined are really insufficient. Now, moving forward into 2022, which is the measurement period for the uh, VBR payout in 2023, we will have two metrics which will support continued growth of this initiative. The population-based metric will be uh, greater than 50% of patients being discharged without opioids. Um, and we understand that oftentimes a population-based metric is driven by uh, the size or volume of a practice. And so we've also uh, included a participation metric where we ask practices implement uh, such a process as we that, that I described previously with uh, um, to implement an opioid-free pathway. And with regards to this implementation process, the coordinating center will define some simple criteria so that, so that practices can adequately meet this participation metric. And we, we will help sites identify key stakeholders and processes based on implementation uh, success at other prior sites. What do we see with the pro data that we've collected today? So if we look at baseline, which is essentially preoperatively, before the patient even has a radical prostatectomy, what are their baseline pain scores? So uh, this has been pretty consistent across uh, before uh, MPOP was initiated during the opioid-limited pathway, so 91%, 87%, and 84% during the opioid-free interval, uh, where they have an average pain score at baseline of less than two. So this is, again, before any surgery. One month postoperatively, uh, we see, again, pretty consistent level of pain scores that remained low. Patients are not having uh, additional significant uh, pain that persists, um, even during the, uh, the implementation of the opioid-limited pathway, and that has been continued during uh, the opioid-free pathway as well. So... 
what we have, what we do know is, is that the alternative pain management strategies that we have employed are effective post-radical prostatectomy. And this is not unique to radical prostatectomy. As you know, this has been implemented across rocks. Um, certainly, I am, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to hopefully implement something like this uh, uh, for kidney. And this is, of course, done uh, across multiple specialties. And so we are helping lead this charge, uh, especially with, uh, with radical prostatectomy. We've seen that there is really a low incidence of additional opioid prescriptions. Um, patients who aren't sent home with opioids, they don't call back saying they need additional pain control. And oftentimes the, um, the, the medication that's given to them is completely sufficient. As we move forward, we really want to understand what is the impact of same-day discharge. We understand uh, during our last skill session with Dr. Roni Abaza uh, and also the push with COVID uh, to be able to get patients out of the hospital quickly to be able to limit their exposure um, um, to to potentially to COVID, that we're trying to get patients out of the hospital. And so uh, discharging a patient on post-operative day zero, will that have an effect on opioid prescribing? And similarly, will that have an impact on uh, ED visits and readmissions? Um, also, we want to understand whether uh, prescribing less opioids, one thing that we don't have insight into yet is, does this change emergency, depart emergency department visits in terms, of, uh, in terms of pain control? And we are also, we have also updated uh, one month pro questionnaire, again, uh, with the advice from M, M Open and the pain specialist there, specifically Dr. Brummett, to ask about not just pain in the entire one month postoperatively, but also uh, in the first week postoperatively, where we're looking at acute postoperative pain management. And finally, um, you've heard from uh, Dr. Samarjan that uh, the, the, pro, the, the revitalization of, the, of, of notes, and we hope that to be able to disseminate it and have a real impact on, uh, on quality improvement on radical prostatectomy. Uh, thank you, and I welcome now the panel for, uh, for the discussion and welcome any, uh, welcome any feedback and questions from, the, uh, uh, from our collaborative members. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, so I'd like to remind everyone um, to please forward your questions to the Q&A box uh, so we can answer them. Um, we also got some of our poll results back and interestingly saw that there was quite a split in people who do and don't use DVD prophylaxis. 60% for, uh, I think 40% um, don't use it. So a lot of variability, a lot of things to address moving forward with music and uh, the future of DVT and PE prophylaxis. Uh, so moving on to opioid-free. Opioid um, so amongst the prostatectomists, who has uh, implemented an opioid-free pathway in your, in your practice? Start with uh, Dr. Ginsburg. Absolutely. Um, I found that it's really uh, like most things about managing expectations. And as long as you're upfront and you know saying that we're going to use a, a variety of other medications, I've not found it to be a, a barrier and just kind of a little bit of our experience. I, I think patients look better and, and feel better as a consequence of not having opioids. They're out of bed more. Um, they're just a little clearer with their mentation. I, I love it. All right. Dr. Block, do you think from a patient standpoint, are patients concerned that they're not going to have their pain needs addressed if they leave the hospital without a narcotic prescription, even if it's yeah. just in case? No, I think that it's a matter of uh, reframing the goals. If the goal is to be, if the patient enters the post-op period thinking that the goal is to be pain-free, they're going to be disappointed. But if it's been reframed as the goal is a balance between adequate pain control and limiting down the road side effects, 
that uh, you really get that cooperation and, and they hone in on a, on a different goal and uh, are much more satisfied without the uh, narcotics. Okay. Has anyone noticed that there's increase in phone calls or increase in need for follow-up visits uh, who sends patients home opioid-free? Dr. George? No, I, I haven't really noticed that um, one in, at our institution or for my patients uh, personally. Um, I think that we, you have a little bit of a litmus test. We currently don't, we don't say, you know, no opioids uh, at all. Um, I know that there, there are some protocols that do that, that Pittsburgh did that. Um, even during anesthesia in the intraoperative period, they, they give zero opioids. Um, so uh, if, if they require it in, in the hospital, it's, it's okay. We don't discharge uh, men with it. Um, it does require from, at least from our own uh, for our, from our own institution, it has the, the actual implementation of it doesn't have a, a huge amount to do with providers. Um, I think the success is is going to be is going to be augmented by providers like um, like Dr. Ginsburg said and Dr. Block said. It's setting expectations with patients, explaining to them the reasons and the trade offs. Uh, but really, it's communicating it with the right groups of people. And, and so for us, uh, it can be and it can vary continuously. Every three months, we'll have a, a rotating group of residents. We do have a pretty consistent group of uh, physician extended uh, physician extenders and uh, uh, physician assistants who who will uh, help with discharges. And and they're really the ones who, who drive this forward. And so once we're able to, to communicate the. The, the goals to the right groups and the resources like the you know the pamphlet and, and other things um, that's when we really saw it take off okay a question from the, uh, from the group uh, Adam Walker asks are you sending patients post process me home with Neurontin and or Toradol or other medications Ditropan um, Dr. Joffrey so uh, patients that I send home with I send home with scheduled Toradol uh, I think that scheduling it uh, so you're not quote-unquote behind I think plays a difference they get as needed oxybutynin for bladder spasms uh, and then kind of a bowel uh, recommendations or a bowel regimen I have not used Neurontin I feel like it's a uh, kind of variable in, in terms of tolerability for that so I, ha I haven't felt the need for that uh, and I don't have experience on the pros and cons of Neurontin or gabapentin uh, post in, in this scenario okay anyone use anything else I've used gabapentin, usually 300 TID, um, and I usually schedule it for uh, five days. Again, with the idea of being, you don't want to get behind. Um, it's just one of those, you know, other, you know, uh, great resources that we have to avoid using narcotics. Right. Okay. The comment, um, congrats to the music team with incredible care transformation. Remember morphine PCAs in 30 tabs of Vicodin. I certainly do. We had a stamp for it when I was an intern. I think everyone got 30 tablets per set. Um, okay. Another question about the use of tap blocks, um, long acting local anesthesia. Anyone has incorporated this into their practice or have their anesthesiologists use this routinely? So I do tap blocks for every case. Um, you know, we've kind of debated, uh, you know, the classic tap block is usually anesthesia, you know, doing an ultrasound got a tap block um, on YouTube. There's a, there's a laparoscopic video that I find really reproducible. And uh, I don't have the patients kind of waiting for uh, the case to be, you know, for a tap block to be done. You know,
you know, before the case gets started. So at the end of the case, you know, while we're closing, um, I'll do a laparoscopic tap block and it seems like it wouldn't work and it works unbelievably well. And you're like, this seems like voodoo and, and are my landmarks right. And I've been shocked as to how much I feel like that more than anything has kind of really changed uh, outcomes uh, in that uh, initial periopter period. That's very cool. So you're doing Sounds it. like Dr. Jaffrey will be creating a music resource for all the providers mm -hmm. in the collaborative. So thank you, Dr. Jaffrey, for volunteering that. <laughs> Anytime, Arvind. <laughs> okay. Um, and I have a couple more questions here um, from Dr. Kotan. Catheter care is always an issue. We need a standard catheter care handout for music. That's definitely something we will keep in mind for future and that probably will reduce ER admissions as well. Um, we have one. We have one institutionally um, that we've uh, that we've developed, um, and but I'm I'm sure that there may be that's actually that's actually a really that's a great comment um, because there's probably a lot of diverse information around catheter care. Um, there are probably some institutions that that do it, some that don't do it, some that do it well, some that don't do it well, um, and so uh, and so that that's actually that's actually a great idea uh, moving forward. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Cook. Um, another comment, not too related to opioids, but any discussion on adding any risk adjustment data for patients like ASA score? I think comparing patients without risk adjustments may not accurately reflect drivers without complications. Um, you know, definitely, that is true. I do believe that there, you know, we may not have ASA score, but I think that there's uh, much data about other comorbidities, age, um, other risk stratifiers within the music database. Uh, Dr. George, do you agree? Anything yeah, else? oh, percent. Um, I mean, we we know that you know there are certain uh, aspects of uh, of clinical care, patient comorbidities, and those kind of things that can drive uh, drive readmissions, drive you know, and the need for you know alternative pain control. Um, and so we have to be selective in terms of in, in terms of who uh, who we choose for an opioid free pathway. But secondarily, you know, not all not all readmissions can be avoided, and and that we understand. Um, you know, we are really trying to target specifically on modifiable readmissions, but even modifiable readmissions such as ileus, there are going to be subgroups of patients who are going to be at greater risk than others. Um, so certainly a risk, uh, a risk adjusted uh, evaluation of, of anything that we do, of, of course, is, is extremely, extremely important, extremely important. Now, um, I did have one question regarding um, like the tap block. Uh, do you give bilateral tap blocks, uh, Dr. Jaffrey? Is that is that what you do? Because uh, I know that for, you know because of, you're kind of going across the midline on both sides, um, then is that is that generally what you do? So the way I set up a prostate, I have the assistant on the patient's right, and so my lateral most port is a twelve port there, and then on the lateral most port is an eight robot on the left, and so basically I'm just going kind of juxtaposed to that port and that gets you at that level that you want to be at kind of that l4 level uh and so i i, I do perform the tap block bilaterally and i kind of put combination of marking and uh steroid uh 15 cc's in both spots and so basically um it's analogous to botox and so if you've done intravesical botox if you're too superficial you get that bleb you know, where you're like, okay, I'm just getting underneath the mucosa. So if you're too close to the peritoneum, 
you'll see it kind of like just the peritoneum kind of bulge out. You want it to kind of be feeling kind of behind um, where you can kind of feel it there. And so it seems like voodoo. It seems like you're not going to be in the right spot. You're like, this isn't going to work. This is not going to work. I'm not in the right spot. And then the patient's are happy and they're doing much better. And so I've been shocked as to, uh, you know, um, how pleasantly, you know, surprised I've been in terms of how I feel that's helped. So I, I do perform that bilaterally just at the end, you know, while I'm, you know, putting, you know, doing a Carter T to my system port. And do you do this for, and I know this may be a little bit off topic for this session, but do you do this for kidneys as well? So initially I didn't. And then um, one of our rotating uh, students then gave a talk on tap blocks. So this is one where I performed it, but didn't necessarily understand the data. And so a lot of the initial data was actually looking at like even cholecystectomy patients because I was thinking, okay, that's going to be higher up. Um, and so, um, you know, truth be told, I always, uh, sometimes I forget in the kidney a little bit more just because you know, you're making an extraction incision if you're doing a radical nephrectomy. And so for that, for those patients, I give local, you know, at the extraction site, um, you know, and I don't think of it as much. I think for a partial, you're not making that full extraction site. So I might do a tap block in that scenario. Uh, but I, I try to give local, I've always given local, you know, at the end of almost every case that I do to begin with. And so adding the tap block was something that I found uh, helpful. So I, I'm, I hadn't done it for kidneys, but I'm going to start trying to do it for that. You know, what I like about that approach is, is that the control is in your hands. You know, surgeons in general feel, you know, they're kind of control freaks, I, I would say, to a certain degree. Um, and, you know, a, a tap block uh, conceptually feels like outside of our purview. But, you know, when you think about it, you know, relative to the complexity of the case that you're performing, it's a very simple, you know, it's 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 a it's it's presumably a very simple procedure that can be done for pain control. So um, uh, I will be looking that up on YouTube. So okay. the other the other thing that I started doing also, uh, and this comes from Dr. Abaza, um, and so whether or not you know it's one of those things where you're doing multiple things at once. So what's making the difference? Um, I use the air seal system, and so I started using lower pneumo. I haven't gone down to six as he's reported, uh, and I've been surprised I haven't seen differences in the case in terms of bleeding. So is that a factor too? Uh, you know, but that's something that I've been trying as well. Is just kind of. Every, every so often I'm kind of, you know, limbo, you know, I'm going limbo and trying to get lower with my pneumo and seeing how it does. Uh, and so is that a factor uh, as well in terms of pain control? Potentially, I know his data is kind of a little bit mixed on that uh, from that standpoint. Yeah, I, I use the SEAL as well. I'm curious to hear um, um, Dr. Samarjan and Dr. Ginsberg's thoughts as well. Um, but uh, I use the SL and I will generally operate at a pneumo of eight. I haven't been brave enough to go down to six, uh, uh, like you said. And, you know, as, as soon as I you know, put them in Trendelenburg and I drop it, you know, I look at the peak peak airway pressures and, and you know, I'm able to now pretty consistently predict from where they are to where, they, where, where they're going to be by decreasing the pneumo. Um, and certainly, um, you know, keeping it below uh, below 30 to prevent any, you know, that, that, that risk of uh, uh, pulmonary complications. Interesting. Yeah, I did use that in fellowship, but haven't since the air seal. I mean, so I'm still using, you know, the full 15. I'm, I'm curious to see you know, what outcomes would be different. Do you think there's a difference in pain control, those kinds of things? Or mostly pulmonary complications? So, so Dr. Bazas, you know, what he commented on for the first start is that, you know, when he was going lower, you wouldn't get that diaphragmatic irritation. And so less of that shoulder complaints. Um, I know when uh, his published data, you know, it was kind of a little bit 
mixed in terms of, you know, was it helpful in the beginning versus six hours, you know, later on. Um, and so he has some potential benefit in terms of pain control, but that's the thought process is, is, is lower pain control associated with the lower uh, pneumoperitoneum. There's a lot of without, without increased risk of bleeding. Yeah, there's a lot of theories like, you know, uh, alterations to renal perfusion, alterations to spontaneous circulation, and maybe that may have an effect on rates of ileus. Uh, not enough evidence, I think, to draw any strong conclusions, but compelling nonetheless. And then I have a question, a follow-up question about the TAPWOX laparoscopically. Dr. Clear asked if you administer them, uh, do you or can you bill for that? Um, I, well, full disclosure, I request that it's billed. Now, am I getting any money back for this? I never pay attention. <laughs> So I, I put in a request or when I send my billing sheet, it includes tap block, uh, but I've, I have not actually formally, I never look back to see or pay attention. So I should probably do that and see if there's a, but in theory, in theory, it should be a billable service. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So we are just wrapping up. Um, we'll turn it over to Dr. Rogers from Kidney. Thank you. Hello, very nice discussion. Uh, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit now and we'll focus on the kidney portion of the meeting. First, I'll give some updates and then uh, some uh, new, uh, new items pertaining to kidney. So first, just reviewing, uh, we've talked a lot about nephrometry scoring and recording tumor complexity as a way to um, help guide decision-making and also uh, review appropriateness of treatment and counsel patients. So remember back in 2018, we presented a, a simplified way of thinking about nephrometry scoring to try to make that easier. Uh, and we did find that urologists felt uh, that they were more likely to be able to record nephrometry scoring. These placards are available on complexity. In terms of what we've seen happening since that time, in terms of actual documentation, uh, we've gone, we have improved up from 25% to 50%. Uh, and that, so we have met our goal uh, in terms of documentation from a participation metric, but we obviously could still do better. Um, so we encourage, we ask you to document nephrometry scoring. And one way that has helped is using templates. This is an example of an EPIC template. Uh, this really helps me because it just forces me to go down through the checklist. This has all of the data that our music abstractors collect uh, related to music kidney. And one on here is nephrometry score. And it has the R, the E, the N, the L. And it and I can, at this point, just kind of think of it in my head. I don't need to go to the placard each time. We're thinking of those extremes of size. And is it completely endophytic? Is it going to go into collecting system? Is it at the same level of the hilum? Or is it the other extreme? Is it polar and cortical? You can quickly come to a nephrometry score and put that in. Um, so we've also talked about uh, chest imaging uh, for patients with kidney tumors, and we've identified as a VBR metric um, for tumors greater that we're focusing on tumors greater than three centimeters in size for imaging with, uh, with that imaging required for over five centimeters with a CT preferred and then recommended for tumors over three cent for smaller tumors over three centimeters with a chest x-ray preferred. Um, so in terms of how we're actually doing with that, you can see we've kind of been at a steady state at about 52% of, of getting chest imaging for these tumors. 
we have exceeding more recently at 57%, which does exceed our VBR metric. So that's good. We, we did exceed our metric for last year. Now, next year, the bar does go higher with a goal of 60%. So we're not quite there. And even if you stratify, if you just take the larger tumors, let's say you change the cutoff to over four centimeters, we're still just below that mark. And, you know, that may, um, and if you also just look at patients going to surgery, so you might think, well, if they're having surgery, they're more likely to get imaging. Even then it wasn't as high of an uplift as we would have thought. So what we thought is at least for surgery patients, uh, many centers get routine chest imaging anyway. And for these larger tumors, especially to really focus on getting the imaging for a metastatic evaluation to help guide uh, treatment. Um, so then third topic is to review is active surveillance. This was uh, discussed at length by Dr. Uh, Patel in detail about um, the project uh, he and others helped to lead on this. Um, and this graph off to the left um, was one takeaway from this consensus panel using experts in music um, and going through an iterative, iterative process uh, to help guide decision-making. So this, this table is showing that on the lower right, you can see that tumors that are larger in patients with a long life expectancy, they are less likely, they're less appropriate for surveillance. Whereas if you look in the uh, upper left, you have smaller tumors in patients with a lower life expectancy. That is where uh, active surveillance would be most appropriate. And if they really have a low life expectancy, um, it would be recommended at all sizes. And then to help with that there on the right here is a life expectancy calculator. This is actually live and available now on the Ask Music um, website. So uh, we encourage you to use this to help guide your decision-making. And uh, coming soon, I'm really excited about this. So this table and, and the other findings from our consensus panel has really been laid out well in a roadmap that will um, be able to help guide decision-making with uh, patients with renal masses. So this is coming soon. Um, and then I want to put a plug in for um, our Music Nationwide Skills uh, Workshop webinar that's coming up soon on October 21st. Uh, that's in the evening, 6 to 8 p.m. It'll feature a keynote speaker, Dr. Sam Bayani from WashU, now the chair of the department, and, and a... Um, and many uh, expert music surgeons that will be giving their tips and tricks on how to avoid positive margins, how to manage them, what is the significance of positive margins, really focusing on how to achieve good cancer control with a uh, partial nephrectomy. Um, and for those who may have videos that they would like to have reviewed um, about technique, uh, you're invited to submit videos for review. Um, so with that, um, kind of review and, uh, and a primer of what's to come. I want to talk about complications of partial and radical nephrectomy. Um, so we talked about notes for prostate, but now we're going to do the same for kidney. And this is what, uh, in discussion, we've gone through what would be an uncomplicated uh, pathway for a patient getting a partial or a radical nephrectomy. And uh, what we've identified is your ideal case would be a patient with low blood loss. If it's a partial nephrectomy, a low ischemia time, uh, avoiding a long length of stay, achieving negative margins, avoiding 
a bounce back in the ER readmission, and then um, accomplishing good preservation of kidney function, or at least avoiding a disproportionate decrease in kidney function. Now, that last one is a little harder to come by because we don't have a lot of data for that. We've discussed different metrics of how you might look at kidney function. Do you just go with an absolute percentage maintained of baseline uh, for partial and radical? Or do you go with an absolute cutoff if you're below a GFR cutoff? Um, so more to come on that as we get more data. And the other thing that we discussed is with the blood loss, that may not necessarily be as clinically significant as blood loss that translates to actionable, you know, uh, something actionable like a transfusion. So we've discussed looking at transfusion rates uh, instead. So, um, so with this identified as, um, you know, our notes pathway, we looked at prevalence of deviation uh, of notes deviation in music. And you can see here each of those, uh, each of those areas, blood loss, ischemia time, length of stay, margins, ED visits, and readmission. Again, we left off the GFR for now, but you can see how this is distributed both for partial nephrectomy and for radical nephrectomy, so blue and green respectively. Um, so largest uh, deviations are seen in the length of stay. Um, but if you look at overall, 28 to 29% of patients had at least one deviation in any of these. So close to a third of patients are having some type of deviation. Now let's look at it by practice. So if you just look at individual practices, which each represent a dot on the screen in each of the areas of notes, um, now this may seem all over the place, and that is actually the message here that it is all over the place. There's wide variability and there's no clear cut. You don't see the same dot at the top or the bottom every time. So there are no clear sort of winners or losers on this. And the same applies for radical nephrectomy. We see wide deviations. On the left again is any deviation. And then on the right, looking at uh, length of stay, margins, ED and readmission. So in summary, what, what do we know so far looking at notes and music? We're seeing similar rates overall of at least one deviation in both partial and radical nephrectomy of about 20, 29%. Um, we're seeing wide practice variation and no one practice being at the top or the bottom consistently and everything. And, um, and with renal function, we know it's going to go down with either surgery, but we're trying to figure out the best way to incorporate this into notes. And again, is it going to be a maintaining a certain percentage or an absolute GFR cutoff? Um, so with that, you know, the question that we would ask is, uh, is can notes actually help us to guide decision-making or, or determine appropriateness of our treatments? And with that, I'll leave it up to for open for questions and discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Craig, for uh, introducing notes uh, to the group. Uh, we've got a great panel here, and so I just uh, would invite uh, anyone on uh, line and watching us to submit questions to the Q&A tab, not to the chat. So go to the Q&A tab, uh, and we're here ready to answer your questions. Uh, let me tell you who we have with us. So we have uh, Mohit Butani, who is a fellow at Henry Ford. Uh, we have Craig Rogers, who you all know and who just spoke. We have Taylor Peoples, who is a PA uh, with the urology team uh, at Henry Ford. And we have Cheryl Sitko, who is our patient advocate 
uh, actually a patient of mine, uh, and really looking forward to kind of each of their contributions into this discussion about uh, outcomes. Um, so maybe let me just start uh, with um, with Mohit uh, or Craig, uh, and really interested in uh, anyone chiming in from the chat as well. Are we on the right track? Are we not on the right track? Tell, tell us, Mohit, what you think about notes uh, versus some of the other ways we could look at things. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it was a lot. It was pretty interesting looking at all this data and just the fact that we can track this data live and, uh, you know, going forward to just continually assess how we're doing as a collaborative and in the state of Michigan. Um, I think we're definitely on the right track. Um, you know, when we looked at these factors and particularly looked at what they're correlating to, we hit some pretty interesting uh, correlations, something like, you know, the length of stay, for example, correlated well with um, the Charleston comorbidity index. So we know that patients who, you know, have a high degree of comorbidity might be staying longer in the hospital. Um, so is this a group we should be looking at a little bit particularly? So it's definitely clinically relevant, uh, and it'll be interesting to track this uh, going forward. Um, I think, you know, given the prostate talk today, one of the questions I had for you guys as a group and definitely Cheryl as well was um, the question of pain. Is that something that needs to come on here somehow? And, you know, opioids. And I'd be curious to everyone's thoughts on that in particular. So Cheryl, let's let's go to you. You know, some the way notes is structured, you get dinged or it's a point for anything that goes uh, awry. But those things surely aren't all the same. Can you maybe from a patient perspective, help us understand, like, if you stayed in the hospital two extra days, is that a big deal or not a big deal versus if you get readmitted to the hospital? What if you only took three pain pills versus 30 pain pills? Does, what, what mattered to you in your recovery that made you feel like it was going well versus it wasn't going well? I, I think that uh, as far as recovery is concerned and being in the hospital, length of stay to me is uh, not very meaningful. In other words, it's about pain control. It's about being well and being able to function at home. And I think that uh, when you were talking about at home, what support system is there and available so that you rebound and recover at a, a, at a good rate and what's anticipated. And I think that, again, comorbidities are truly a great factor for this. So if you have like a 55-year-old that, that needs a partial nephrectomy and does well with that, Dr. Lane, thanks to you, uh, you know, and uh, so we get eight days in the hospital, we get eight days in the hospital, but pain is a huge thing and so is the comorbidities and also, you know, the aftermath. What's it going to take to get healthy? Got it. So I, I think to summarize and hear from what, what you've said, what happens in the hospital may not be all that relevant. It's once you're out the door in your home, how am I feeling when I'm home? Maybe, Taylor, can you feed back on that? When you're taking phone calls from patients and what, what are you hearing? What matters and, and what are patients most bothered by? Yeah, absolutely. To feed back off Cheryl, what Cheryl was saying, you know, she wants to feel comfortable leaving the hospital and going home and knowing if she needs something that someone's available to call her and that she doesn't have to go into the ER to get questions answered. So what I try and always do is make sure our patients have my direct number. Once they leave the hospital, if there's any problems, they know they can call me and I'll get back to them. Just that reassurance makes, you know, maybe a 
the difference between a one to two hospital day stay between a five day hospital day stay, just having that reassurance from a someone is there for me, even though I'm not here. Um, so, you know, with them knowing that ahead of time, I think being able to contact me is a big thing. Um, most common question I get probably from patients is pain management once they get home. Um, a lot of times they're feeling great by the time they get home, they kind of forget the pain management or regimen that they were on in the hospital. Um, and then, you know, the question is, is, well, I'm all out of the narcotics, a few narcotics you sent me home with. Typically the first question I ask is, well, what are you taking around the clock? And typically the answer to that is I forgot that I'm supposed to be taking Tylenol and Robaxin is, you know, around the clock in the, the narcotic as needed. Um, so typically just reminding patients to not get behind on pain um, is typically the first thing I go to. And, and I, I just want to say that I agree 100% with that because of the narcotics and not using that and the education. There's a lot of people out there that do not want to use narcotics. Mm -hmm. They also understand that there needs to be pain control. And sometimes I think they get braver than they should be. Yeah. It's okay. Where's the threshold? And that's where the education comes in. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. Taylor, I want to follow up because I heard Dr. Rogers say this previously, uh, and you said it again. So you guys routinely use Tylenol and Robaxan, but not uh, anti-inflammatories, not Motrin or and anything like that? Or what's, what is the standard regimen and, and how did you come to that? Is that good for you or Craig, whoever wants to answer? Either way. Go for it, tell, go for it Taylor. Okay. So typically we'll send patients home on a Tylenol and Robaxin. And then the hard thing is, is, you know, right after surgery, your kidneys do take a big hit. So I try and save Motrin as a third line if we absolutely need it. Um, but typically most of our patients do do okay with just the Tylenol and Robaxin. If they're really struggling and they need something else, then I have them take, you know, Motrin for a short period of time. Um, but that's not my tip. Of, I mean, Dr. Rogers, if you have anything else to add to that. Um, but that's typically the route I go. That's kind of the third step on the chain. And what proportion of your patients receive versus are taking narcotics after robotic kidney surgery? Dr. Rogers and I see the patients two to three weeks after surgery. And I, I always ask that question, you know, what, what pain medicine did you actually end up taking? I would probably say 70, over 75% of the patients don't even end up taking their narcotics, or if they do, it's maybe one or two doses to get through that first day, just to reassure themselves that they're okay. I'm not even quite sure that they needed it, but it was probably just more of a comfort thing. I, Dr. I from, from a patient perspective and say that's, that's about how it went for me too. Uh, Mohit, what was your question? I was wondering, Dr. Lane, Dr. Rogers, you know, there's been such a uh, discussion about the tap block today. Did you guys have any thoughts on, you know, tap blocks in your cases or, you know, have you seen anything different? I can tell you what we're switching to. We used to always do our own tap block at the end, just like with what was discussed, slightly different for kidney than prostate. But uh, um, I'm, I'm on board lately with the erector spinae block. I think it's giving a, a, a better block and it's very easy to do. Um, and our regional team's able to do that pre-op without delaying the flow of the case. So, so we're trying to make that automatic now for everyone, especially if it's a radical nephrectomy, if there's going to be a bigger incision for extraction. So I remember 10, 15 years ago at the, at the clinic, we didn't give any local, we didn't do anything. And yet we were trying to get people home 
Um, I think local definitely helps. Um, if you have a good setup and you have the patients, then tap block is fine. But I, for my same day prostates, I went to uh, local injection of sites. I also put intraperitoneal lidocaine, uh, which I learned from our robotic gallbladder surgeon. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what we've been doing in getting people home. But so I don't think you need tap block, but I think you should use something. Uh, and for kidney, we were doing tap blocks, but started getting from them as well. Hey, Brian, just to back up a little bit, cause we are going to cover pain more in the next Q and a after, uh, cause, uh, Mohit's yep. going to talk about that in his lecture, but back on the notes it, you know, based on what I'm hearing from uh, from Cheryl, especially, is that there can be differences in how what might be perceived as an uncomplicated pathway, whether you ask the surgeon, the patient, the hospital, the insurance company, you know, the different views on what is success or what's a deviation, right? And yep. maybe different views on what is clinically significant. For example, blood loss whether it's 150 or 100 or 200, that may not be significant as to did the patient get transfused and warm ischemia time. Was it 28 minutes? Was it 22 minutes? May not be as relevant as what the final, what the final renal function is, which we don't have data yet. But um, so maybe just curious, and I don't know if any questions have come through as to when we look at all those metrics that we're looking at, are these the most meaningful things that we should be asking? And, and although we've set this arbitrary number of days in the hospital, could that be reflective of something else? Like why did the patient have to stay three days? Was it simply for their comfort and peace of mind or did something happen? Was there a pneumonia? Was there a bleeding episode? So we can't always pin down what that means, but it's sort of a surrogate that, okay, if you stayed in the hospital a long time, maybe something was out of the ordinary that caused that to happen. We don't ding everybody, but you have to start somewhere and then you can do a deeper dive. I don't know. It's a lot, just so, thoughts. I don't know what you all think. Carol, do you want to feedback or you want me to tidy that up for you for a question? Do you care <laughs> if you needed a blood transfusion? Does that matter at all? Um. I, I, I think for religious purposes, for everybody else, for me, no, it was a survival. Okay. So, but, and, and I would assume, Great like, outcomes. If been, like if you lost a hundred, like three tablespoons versus five tablespoons, you could care less. Yeah. I'm and, not going to cry buckets. Right. And the amount of time I clamped a kidney, I know you don't care about, do you care if your renal function gives you a GFR of 40 versus 37? You're not that close, but GFR scores mean a lot. Okay, so renal function I mean, matters to you. you. If you if you're invested in what's going on, yep. as I am, you're you want to know about your GFR scores. You want to know where you're at and and the function and the outcomes of okay. everything that goes on. So I think that's helpful, Craig. It sounds like you know there is some relevance in our you know on the on the phone call one patient, both in terms of blood transfusions and in terms of renal functional status. What about uh, some of the other things uh, that Craig's alluding to? Like, again, I think you've commented maybe length of stay doesn't matter, but is a readmission versus an ER visit, does that count differently? Is it just being annoyed and being home and being in a lot of pain? Is that all kind of factor the same or? Absolutely not. Um, with my second uh partial nephrectomy uh, at, at, with the same kidney. I ended up in ER uh, probably, I think, three days afterwards. 
And uh, it meant a lot to me because uh, obviously there were complications. I, there's, to mine, there shouldn't have been, but there was. And so that ER trip, that fear for, for me as a patient is, holy cow, they're going to readmit me again. And so now I'm from a different hospital system away from my, my surgeon uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a crisis kind of thing for you because now you've got anxiety on top of trying to treat the symptoms. Does that make sense? Yep. I think that's very helpful. And again, as, as surgeons and as a group, we want to find a way to know what's a bother, but it is hard to, to quantify, you know, this was a big deal. This was less. We do have a question from the chat to you. Um, what was the most important, um, did, factor for you in your treatment decision-making for your surgery? Oh, absolutely outcomes. There's no doubt in my mind, you know. Um, and outcomes means that cancer's treated? Pardon me? What does that mean, outcomes? The cancer's treated or you're the walking cancer's again, treated or? and that, that the kidney, what the one kidney that I had is somewhat salvageable, so I don't go on dialysis. The outcomes are truly that important. Are you are you going to, you know, get rid of cancer? What is it that I? What kind of quality of life am I going to have afterwards? Great, a big deal. Another question here from the from the chat or comment from uh, Dr. Talang. Uh, I've been using Marcaine and OnQ pumps for post-op uh, nephrectomies as well as open surgery. Um, uh, those with a hospital abdomen, they're pain-free and it lasts three days and is easy. Um, so thanks. That that sounds like another good option to even for open surgery to get patients' pain controlled well. Um, well, it looks like we're at our time, but we will have another Q&A session here in a, in a moment. Let me use this to transition us. Uh, Dr. Butani is going to uh, take us through uh, some more, as uh, Dr. Rogers just alluded to, uh, in terms of uh, outcomes, uh, ER visits, and, and pain control on these issues. Great discussion so far today, and thank you, Dr. Rogers, for that terrific talk. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mohi Patani, and I'm a current fellow at the Vatican Urology Institute at the Henry Ford Health System, working with Dr. Craig Rogers. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. It's truly been an amazing experience to work with the music team, and I'm extremely excited about the collaborative's tremendous potential for improving urological care. Dr. Rogers has already discussed the work being done to define the uncomplicated recovery pathway post-nephrectomy and to better look at the perioperative outcomes to improve our surgical care. As a part of this effort, we decided to take a deeper look into our emergency department visits and readmissions that might help us target our efforts to reduce these. As this group is already well aware, these are not only good indicators of quality and care being given to patients in Michigan, but also important contributors to healthcare costs and utilization at a time when reducing them has certainly come to the forefront. In order to do this, we started by looking at our numbers of emergency department visits and readmissions in the music kidney registry since its inception. As highlighted in this figure, on the left we see the rates for patients who come in and are discharged from the ED itself which are pretty similar for both partial and radical nephrectomies at about 26 to 2.9%. The bars in the middle highlight that readmission rates to the hospital 
was slightly higher with radical nephrectomies at 4.2% as compared to 2.9% for partials. The bars on the far right show these rates combined. We found that our rates are pretty comparable to nationally reported averages for nephrectomies, if not slightly better. But that certainly does not mean there is no room for improvement. One of the well-known limitations of studies reporting at readmission rates is the inability to capture readmissions at outside hospitals, which results in a bit of an underestimation of these rates. So in that context, we are excited about the potential of this registry to be able to more comprehensively capture this data. One of the other powerful things about the music system is the ability to look at practice variation across the state of Michigan. This is certainly going to give us a unique opportunity to understand what system-related perioperative processes are working and what might not be working on a more granular level. As you can see, there is certainly a wide variation with regards to the rates of both ED visits and readmissions across the practices we looked at. This gives us a terrific opportunity to to learn from institutions who are performing well in this metric and potentially help in identifying areas of improvement in other practices. This next chart highlights a similar degree of variation with unadjusted rates of ED visits and readmissions in radical nephrectomies, with the dotted lines highlighting our music-wide average. We then went on to look at the factors associated with these ED visits and readmissions. We found that a BMI less than 25, a length of stay greater than three days, and a warm ischemia time greater than 30 minutes were associated with readmissions in partial nephrectomy patients. When we looked at our radical nephrectomy data, we saw that patients who visited the ED were relatively younger. We certainly need to dig into this data deeper to see what drives these visits and our understanding will definitely get better with increasing statistical power as well. As our focus with music is always to improve the quality of our patient care, we then set out to figure out what we can do to prevent these ED visits and readmissions. This is where the collaborative power of music truly shone through. Just being able to get charts across the state of Michigan to perform a chart review is an amazing opportunity. I do have to especially thank our kidney team lead Anna Johnson for her efforts in making this happen seamlessly. So our goal with this chart review was to attempt to figure out the reasons for these ED visits or readmissions, and then to attempt to develop strategies for reducing preventable causes. In total, we reviewed 90 charts and then cataloged the reasons and the clinical course associated with these visits and readmissions. When we looked at partial nephrectomies, we found a total of 50 patients who needed care after their index hospitalization. Out of these 50 patients who visited the emergency department, 29 went on to have a readmission. Majority of the readmissions, as you can see, were due to bleeding or blood loss. This was followed by postoperative pain, which made up majority of the emergency department visits only, but as you can see, it rarely translated into an admission. This was followed by infection, gastrointestinal causes. The one DVT and PE formed the two patients in the DVT PE category, few cases of urinary retention, one urine leak, a single bowel injury, an ED visit for cardiovascular reasons, a neurological admission potentially unrelated to the index admission, a presumed abscess given the presentation, which was eventually diagnosed as a seroma, 
and a few ED visits for a multitude of smaller reasons. The other category is certainly interesting as well since it included patients who presented for a rash due to a surgical binder, a JP drain removal, post-op swelling, and an incision check. All of which could likely have been managed in a scheduled outpatient fashion. As highlighted by these boxes, 16 of these patients required surgical or IR interventions. Overall, in our initial look into this, we found that over 60% of these emergency department visits were potentially avoidable, and over 70% of complications potentially preventable. Similarly, when we looked at radical nephrectomies, we found that 35 patients deviated from their normal post-op pathway. Out of these 35, 15 required ED-only visits and 20 required admissions after their ED visits. Here too, we can see that post-operative pain was an important reason for an emergency department visit, but again did not translate into a subsequent admission in most cases, highlighting a category of visits that can potentially be worked on. Compared to partial nephrectomies, a much larger number of patients had ED visits and readmissions due to gastrointestinal causes and fewer due to bleeding and blood loss. A large number of patients had cardiovascular reasons or reasons associated with kidney injury, which might be driven by the patient population. We also saw two visits for retention, one admission for post-op hernia, an admission for chylosocietes, an ED visit and admission due to infectious causes, and another admission due to a stroke. The two ED visits listed as others in this case were largely related to post-op swelling. Only three of the admissions in this situation required surgical or IR intervention. Similar to our partial nephrectomy rates, we found that over 60% of these emergency department visits too were potentially avoidable and over 75% of complications preventable. There's certainly room for better understanding some of these visits and readmissions by further diving deep into the operative course and preoperative status of patients, and we are currently looking into this. When looking at the bigger picture, comparing partial and radical nephrectomy, we found a similar 60% of ED visits converting to hospital readmissions. We found that a large contributor of ED visits, almost about 50%, was postoperative pain. While some of these were potentially necessary visits requiring admission, the large proportion of these visits were potentially expected post-op pain and discomfort that could potentially have been avoided. Readmissions were largely driven by bleeding-related complications in the partial nephrectomy category, with a significant number of patients requiring admission and surgical or IR intervention. The largest contributor to readmissions in the radical nephrectomy category was gastrointestinal in nature. While the definition of what is avoidable or preventable is a topic of much discussion by itself, our initial review did find a large portion of uh, potentially avoidable visits and preventable complications, certainly providing us with the quality improvement opportunity. We then set out to really think about what we can do to avoid ED visits and readmissions. There's obviously not gonna be a magic bullet to help us reduce all avoidable visits and preventable complications, but a multi-pronged approach can potentially help us make a dent in these numbers. This is where I'm hoping 
thoughts from our audience and our panel might might be able to provide some insight and ideas into improving the quality of care for our patients. Based on some of the major contributors to these visits and admissions, I did want to highlight two quick points to get our discussion started. The first is the importance of education and management of post-op concerns cannot be emphasized enough. Payne and Ilias were definitely expected contributors to these deviations from the standard pathway. Our terrific and more established prostate team realized this early, and so I wanted to give a quick shout out to them for putting together these terrific educational pamphlets, which clearly have some utility in this setting as well, uh, to better counsel our patients. Based on our review, setting expectations can certainly at least drive down the avoidable ED visits significantly. Additionally, given the readmissions were primarily driven by bleeding complications in a large number of cases, particularly in our partial nephrectomy cohort, perhaps uh, this is an opportunity to improve surgical technique and maybe even consider adjuvant agents. So this might be uh, a topic you might potentially see a future music workshop in. Again, this is just a preliminary look at our deeper dive into emergency department visits and readmissions but clearly this is data worth having a conversation about. And this also highlights how we might, as a collaborative, effectively be able to continue to monitor the quality of care we are providing. Lastly, and most importantly, I just wanna thank all the music associated practices, surgeons, and their data abstractors for making this amazing collaborative a reality so we are able to put together such data and truly make an impact on quality of urological care in the state of Michigan. Most importantly, thanks again, Dr. Rogers and Dr. Lane for their support and guidance, Dr. Connie and his team for their leadership, and a special thanks to Anna Johnson for her efforts in making this happen. We will now move on to our panel to take on any questions and get everyone's thoughts on this effort. Thanks again. Thanks, Mohit. I, I think that was a great uh, lead-in and analysis. You and Anna and uh, the team put a, a fair amount of work into this. And I think there were some somewhat surprising findings that were there. Um, Maybe let's just start with Taylor. Um, did that look like it made sense to you? Is that what your sense is from the phone calls you get and from the way patients have been going? Does it sound pretty like we likely did it right? We captured the uh, the scenario? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, a lot of patients who, you know, this is exactly why I give my phone number out, you know, pain management problems with, you know, GI problems, stuff like that. Those are so easy to field questions or even squeeze them into your, you know, your clinic for the day. Hey, you know, let, why don't you come in? I'll just take a peek at you instead of them not having anyone to go to and they end up in the ER when it's something I could have easily managed even via text, you know, most of the time it's just kind of reassuring the patient. Um, you know, obviously there are situations where I do think the ER is appropriate, um, whether, you know, it's after hours or it's a weekend and, you know, I just physically can't get to them. And if they're that anxious or upset about it or in pain or something like that, then that is appropriate. But, you know, that's exactly why I do give my, my, um, my contact information out to try and avoid those trips back to the ER. That's, that's great. So, uh, Cheryl, talk to me about uh, that the, this could be a loaded question, but talk to me about the preoperative counseling you got. Uh, and does it sound like 
there were some things that would have been missed or do you think was adequate or, you know, were there symptoms you experienced afterwards that really never got mentioned? Yeah, that's a loaded question. So I, I know, but yeah. as a physician, seriously, uh, you know, you can, you can prep people for as much as you think that's going to happen. And that's, it's, it's some science and some speculative. And of course, the comorbidities speak volumes for everyone and everyone's different. For me, going to ER, because I had that, that unfortunate visit, is because I was short of breath and I have some common sense. I, I, I think that, you know, you can sit as a physician and say, if you experience signs and symptoms or your PA or whoever discharges you, or you, you're short of breath, your feet are swollen, you can't get them in shoes, you know, those kind of things. You see your labs as a patient and you go, geez, my, my uh, score for anemia is kind of low. So let's, I'm, I'm adding all this up. I'm potentially am in trouble. Get a hold of them and head to the ER. For this case, for me personally, that was a good decision. For others, if we can keep them out of ERs, I think that's awesome. But, you know, where's the threshold? And I think that's education. Absolutely. I, I'm going to go to the feed for a second. We have a, a question, uh, anonymous question. If most patients are prescribed similar pain medications postoperatively, is there something we can send them home with that describes what to take, when to take it, and how much to take? So thanks. That's a great a lead in. That's exactly what we're working on, similar to what happened uh, for prostatectomy and prostate cancer patients, developing an, uh, a very similar uh, handout. And one of the things for the collaborative to decide, and I'm very interested, I don't know if we can do a poll maybe online, is would you want your patients to have one uh, M open form for prostate cancer surgery and one for kidney cancer surgery, or would you want one for surgery? Um, and would your office staff be comfortable with one brochure uh, and get confused with two, or would they need their own? And similarly, I think, Cheryl, if we gave you a handout that said, these are the medications we think you're going to take after your surgery, does that make you feel not special enough? And if it said kidney surgery, you would believe it more, or does, does that matter? It matters to me because I'm an individual. And my pain of thresh, my threshold for pain could be very different than Mr. Smith in the next room. Right. So I think it's individualized. I think that uh, there's thresholds for different people for different things. Does that make sense? Yep. This, this is a follow-up question, maybe the same or someone else, and either you or Taylor maybe could comment. Could we provide paperwork in regards of what to expect feel on each post-operative day based off of the most common complaints. Does that sound like a helpful, like on day one, you should expect this, on day two, you should expect that, or is it too varied uh, to get that granular? Maybe Taylor, you're probably the best person to answer that one for us. Yeah, that is a great question. You know, it'd be so nice to say, this is what you expect every day of your recovery, but I think everyone just has so much variability in how they even handle pain going into surgery, how they handle, you know, just the psychological component, all of it together, it's very hard to know um, how everyone's going to, to react to surgery and heal from surgery. Um, you know, I see patients two weeks later, I get phone calls. Some people are still, you know, almost like it's day three and some people are ready to go run a marathon. I mean, I think every day 
with recovery is is very different for everybody. Great. Here's here's another question. Um, I don't know if this is going to be fair for the panelists. Maybe we need another poll. Um, Dr. Jaffrey, how many of you routinely prescribe NSAIDs post-op after kidney surgery? I haven't found bleeding issues and with good hydration status confirmed, I haven't found renal functional issues. Uh, maybe that has to go to the um, poll. I will tell you, I use them uh, for my patients. So I do not give Robaxin. Uh, I give Tylenol and uh, ibuprofen or naproxen uh, within a backup plan of uh, the oxycodones. Um, I think everyone else on there is from Ford, so you're not going to give a different answer. Uh, if there's a way in it and make a poll, we'll do it. Or you guys can just drop in your, your thoughts. Yes, no on NSAIDs there. And yeah, Brian, I think it's one thing if, uh, if a patient has had a nephrectomy and they have chronic kidney disease, you know, and, and then you're more conscious of, um, you know, of nephrotoxic agents, but for the for a partial nephrectomy, someone with a normal contralateral kidney, I want that patient to get, even right after surgery, I want them loaded with Toradol when they leave that room. So when they wake up, you don't want that patient in pain with a blood pressure of 200 because they're uncomfortable. That's going to make them bleed, right? I'd rather have, so I don't worry about, are they on baby aspirin? If they're on aspirin for something, I'll do a partial with that. I'd rather deal with that then have a blood clot or a stroke, and then they get systemically heparinized, and then they're really going to bleed. And same with Toradol or NSAIDs or even sub-Q heparin. You know, I'm not, I will give that because if someone gets a DVT, I'd rather not deal with systemic heparinization. So there are some things that you kind of put up with because in the long run, I think you're going to be less likely to have serious bleeding. I think there's, I think uh, dose is a really important thing. So, you know, th those guys for uh, prostatectomy have been taking uh, naproxen twice daily for their prostatitis for four weeks going into surgery uh, can have some bleeding uh, dysregulation from their naproxen. But someone who's going to take one, two, three doses of that or Toradol, I, I don't think that's really a bleeding concern. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm with you. And then similarly, um, if it's a patient who's got preoperative kidney dysfunction, yeah, let's, let's let it sit third. But if you've already got some lab work or some things indicating, uh, that there's not a lot of concern for kidney dysfunction, I would just, I would use it. So almost always, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, I'm interested, uh, again, we, maybe we glossed over it. We put some percentages to it. Um, I know Mohit said, I believe it was 60% of ED visits are potentially avoidable. I'm wondering how that sits with the collaborative. Um, you know, is that going to motivate you to employ other staff um, to make phone calls or do something different in your process? I think you know we have a model here uh, presented before us with with Taylor uh, presenting on the call about she's giving her home or her mobile number. I I'm not sure that most surgeons or PAs are giving that, um, but I imagine that's really helping to avoid ED visits. Um, I don't know if in the chat, if people want to say other things that they think have been helpful uh, or if, you know, this is motivating them to say, wow, you know, in the literature, we're talking about bleeding complications and all this, but half of our visits are for things that maybe never needed to happen. Um, Cheryl, what, Cheryl, give us your thoughts on that. Is this, is this surprising to you or does this seem to make sense that there's, there's better care that could be provided and you're hoping we'll do it? I think that... 
again, everybody's different. Uh, you and all the physicians that are that are dealing with this, you, you obviously know the protocols of standard of care, and that that I don't know. For me personally, I expect that. Uh, are there complications? Of course, there are going to be. That's 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 the business that that we're all in. Um, What's irregular versus anticipated is I think is 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 what needs to be discussed. And every person is going to be very different. Standard of care. It's that's how I look at it. And people are going to go into ERs and they are going to call physicians uh, or the PAs or whoever's on call. And they should be encouraged to do that because it's not just the physical aspect, it's also emotional. Yeah, I think for me, I I was gonna direct it to Craig, but maybe I'll comment um, and then get your thoughts back. Looking at this work, and and I didn't do the chart reviews, I'm appreciative to those who did, it really does surprise me um, how many of the ER visits look like they could have been avoidable. I think that really inspires me um, to say there are things that, we can do in our practices, I can do in my practice. Um, I think the one phone number comment that Taylor mentioned is, is spot on. I think it's very difficult um, in, in my practice sometimes for uh, patients because I think there's several people they could call. I can say as a patient, it's a challenge because it's it's hard sometimes to know who to call. Um, I feel like that's a really good suggestion and something that seems important if it's really gonna be that many of the ER visits. And then to look at the number of uh, complications or readmissions for real reasons, um, you know, and bleeding complications. I, I am inspired. We didn't really talk about it yet. So maybe uh, you can comment about what adjuvants you use or what do you do um, to, to try to limit bleeding complications. And maybe, again, as, as Moet said, that can be a, a longer discussion another day, but just interested in your thoughts and, and impressions on what you saw. directed to one of us oh all right well so first thing there in terms of the calls i'm with taylor um in that uh there are calls that i want to get you know taylor gets more calls than i do but i give out my uh cell phone as well and i learned that as a resident at hopkins because dr walsh always used to give patients his home phone number and uh and he found that patients you know, there may be some concern, oh, it's going to get abused. No, there are calls that I want to hear about, especially if it's a week out and a patient calls and they're having gross hematuria with clots after a partial nephrectomy. I don't want that patient to just be pacified that, oh, you know, drink a lot of fluids and call me. I want them to come in. And if they end up in an outside ER, I want that ER physician to call and not just rush that patient to surgery and take the kidney out. I want to know about it. So I think it's worth it to give patients an easy way to reach out to you. And also when the stakes are high and you have to do a partial nephrectomy and you know that there's a higher risk of bleeding, you know, there, there are things, whether you put them on a more conservative pathway of, of uh, mobility and diet and uh, hemostatic agents. And, you know, I can replace blood. I can embolize a kidney. I can't give a kidney back once I've taken it out. So there are times where, you err on the side of, okay, we're on the fence here. There is a chance it could bleed, but you deal with it and you keep that patient a little longer and watch them closely. So covered a lot of ground there, but just my thoughts. Well, I, I appreciate the input. I, I hope that for the collaborative, this was a value 
uh, both for those doing uh, nephrectomies and also just as we think about our overall urologic practice. I think we're seeing a lot of parallels to what we saw uh, with prostate cancer uh, and the ongoing work in rocks. And so I, I'm just glad we can continue to push that forward and, and I hope this has been of value. So thanks to the panelists and I'll turn it over at this point uh, to Dr. Dow uh, for the rocks team and their presentation. Thanks, Craig, uh, and uh, kudos to you and Mohit for putting together a tremendous uh, kidney uh, session. I feel that I learned a lot. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Casey Dow. Um, I, uh, along with uh, Kershid's help, run the Music Rocks uh, program. And today what we're going to be discussing as a, our part of the collaborative-wide meeting is urine testing before ureteroscopy, posing the question, are we adhering to the guidelines? Before we dive in, I just wanted to give folks a couple programmatic updates since it's been several months since we've last uh, discussed. And many of these things will come up in your implementation and dissemination site visits. But as you know, we've kicked off a robust patient reported outcomes initiative. This is a fully online and automated questionnaire that goes out to both ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy patients administering baseline questionnaires, seven to 10 day questionnaires, and four to six week questionnaires. Um, participation in this will be a part QI participation metric going forward. And I think it's really gonna provide us some great insight into how the patients are faring after these outpatient surgeries. We've got some really exciting news that many of you have probably heard with leadership from uh, Kershid Ghani. Uh, our first uh, Music Rocks clinical trial has been funded. It's an industry sponsored trial called the Better Lithotripsy and Ureteroscopy Evaluation of Stenting, or BLUES Music Trial. It is going to leverage the Patient Reported Outcomes Initiative that we have ongoing, assessing a silicone, novel silicone stent uh, manufactured by Coloplast versus uh, standard stenting, uh, namely looking at things like quality of life and healthcare utilization between those randomized to a silicone stent or a standard stent. So we're very excited for that. We've got some new expansions into patient education. Uh, a great partnership with the Urology Care Foundation uh, has uh, resulted in this really excellent uh, video that essentially takes some of our stent-related material and puts it into a, a multimedia a QI code-linked um, video, which I think is going to get great traction in this age of smartphones and ability to get media at our fingertips. And then finally, Thanks to all those who participated in a questionnaire seeking to validate our shared decision-making tool, which helps us to better educate our patients surrounding shockwave lithotripsy and ureteroscopy, uh, and which procedure is best suited to which patients. More on this to come in the future. So to dive into the talk today, as I mentioned previously, we're going to be discussing uh, preoperative urine testing prior to ureteroscopy. The reason that we thought we would discuss this today, outside of some great interest from our collaborators and colleagues at the Michigan Institute of Urology, which you'll hear about later, is really looking at the evidence. So we know from very large multinational studies, such as the Clinical Research Office of the Endourologic Society, or CROAS database, which looks at all things endoscopic surgery, that infectious complications occur in approximately 2% of patients after ureteroscopy. And we can all recognize that these have potentially dire consequences to patients. If we look further at predictors for postoperative infection after ureteroscopy or sepsis, we see 
that infectious complications happen much more frequently in the presence of a positive preoperative urine culture uh, occurring in just shy of 7% of patients. So infectious complications are dire. They occur not that frequently, but certainly are more common in those that have positive preoperative urine testing. If we look at our own data, kind of leveraging the power of the music registry, we can see from this pilot experience that one in 40 patients are hospitalized within the Music Rocks registry, kind of uh, consistent with what I saw and, and described in the CROAS registry. And one in five of those patients did not have any preoperative urinalysis or culture, which represents a potentially missed opportunity. What I'd like to do now is put forth a case representation of why I, and I think many people across the state, think that this question of preoperative urine testing is important. So this is a case example, actually one of my own patients. I think uh, what I've learned early on in practice and many more senior folks to me on this call would recognize this. There are three to five patients that by name you can recognize because they either had a great or more often an awful outcome. And this is one that immediately came to mind and reinforced this idea of preoperative testing. So this is a 47-year-old female who presented with acute left flank pain and was found, as you can see on the CT scan, scan there on the right, to have a left 9-millimeter mid-ureteral cell with hydronephrosis. She was urgently stented uh, and then was evaluated due to some uh, issues uh, six weeks after her stent placement with a plan put in place by myself for ureteroscopy. Now, she had a negative urinalysis and culture at the time of her stent placement, um, but I did not repeat a urinalysis or culture. Fast forward three more weeks, and she undergoes a left ureteroscopy now nine weeks from initial stent placement, and immediately impact you developed hypotension, tachycardia, and rigors, obviously concerning for urosepsis, and was admitted expediently to the ICU. While there, she was placed on pressors, she was intubated, and was critically ill. Her blood and urine cultures ultimately grew enterococcus, and she was treated with IV vancomycin ultimately extubated and weaned off her pressors, but discharged after outpatient surgery seemingly on post-operative day 17 with a lengthy rehabilitation course. So I pose the question, was this a potential gap or lapse in care? Now we can argue that up and down, but I think what we all can recognize from this case example is that urosepsis following endoscopic procedures like ureteroscopy is a major issue. And when it happens, it only takes one for us to recognize that it can seem it turn a seemingly indolent procedure into something that is quite severe. Thankfully, we do have guidance from both the American Urologic Association and the European Association of Urology with regard to preoperative testing uh, prior to ureteroscopy. The AUA guidelines recommend clinicians uh, obtain a urinalysis prior to intervention and also get a culture if there is signs or clinical symptoms of infection. The AU, EAU expands on this a bit indicating that a urinary tract infection should always be treated prior to stone treatment, and patients that have clinically significant infections should be drained prior to treatment, and that a urine uh, culture or microscopy should always be performed before treatment. So in light of these recommendations, we thought it might be helpful to have uh, urologists across the state respond to a survey to see if their practices, your practices, align with what we're seeing uh, with guidelines. It would have been great to do this as a survey if we were all in the same room, but I digress. This is a virtual meeting. So the questions we asked you were threefold. Should a urinalysis be performed before ureteroscopy? When should a culture be performed? And should a course of antibiotics be prescribed before ureteroscopy? 
We had 100 respondents, which is excellent, and that's a testament to your guys' involvement. When asked, should a urinalysis be performed, 92% said yes, kind of not surprisingly. I think it's a pretty common test. When we asked whether a urine culture should be performed, the majority of respondents indicated that it should always be performed or if a urinalysis was positive. So again, concordant with guidelines. So more than 75% uh, recommended that in some form or fashion, a urine culture should be performed. 11% further indicated that if there were signs or symptoms of infection, it should be performed. And really nobody said that a urinalysis shouldn't be, or urine culture shouldn't be performed. And finally, should a course of antibiotics be prescribed before ureteroscopy? A few people thought they should always be prescribed, which is somewhat interesting, um, but we can expand upon that in the discussion section live. But 93% indicated, like guidelines indicate, that if a urinalysis or culture is positive, we should absolutely be treated with antibiotics before ureteroscopy. So with that, I'm going to turn uh, things over to my good friend, uh, Renee Frontera from Michigan Institute of Urology, who's going to really dive into, in essence, why we decided to use this as the substrate for this meeting and give MIU's experience with preoperative urine testing and some of its implications. So thank you, Renee, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Casey. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to participate in Music Rock's uh, web presentation. And we want to share with uh, you and uh, uh, the audience uh, a small project that uh, we started at MIU regarding um, uh, outcomes after uh, any kind of stone surgery, that means ureteroscopy, PCNL, or ESWL. We noticed that uh, as a practice probably experiences, uh, there are some cases of post-surgical uh, fever, infections, even sepsis. Our quality assurance committee has taken a look at this, and uh, we decided to take a further, uh, deeper look into how we can implement a process to improve our patient safety. Uh, we reached out to Music, who uh, was very uh, forthcoming in providing data regarding pre-op antibiotics. Um, using this data, we identified certain uh, areas and processes we could uh, use to improve our outcomes. As you know, national uh, guidelines call for a urinalysis before any kind of uh, urologic stone surgery. Um, the data from music revealed that about 85% of the time, urinalysis was done. However, a significant 15% did not obtain a urine prior. Um, here we can see a graph. Uh, every uh, provider is listed independently. And even though our average is 86%, there is a widespread between providers. Um, the other uh, piece of information that was very valuable was to look at, well, once a urinalysis was obtained, did that follow with their urine culture? And as you can see, one out of every four did not. Um, the definition of a positive urinalysis is positive nitrates, although uh, the provider has, of course, the discretion to order a urine culture whether the nitrates are positive or not. Uh, this data applies only to those who were positive. One out of four positive urinalysis were not followed by uh, culture. And furthermore, 
if a culture was done and reported as positive, how many uh, were prescribed antibiotics in preparation to the surgery? And as you can tell, 29% did not. Um, clearly, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement here. Um, once we analyzed the, uh, the data and the information, well, we did several things. First of all, we reached out to our providers and uh, we asked them to uh, agree to unblind the, the data, which every single one did. Uh, once we had this information, we reached out to each individual and uh, made available their data to, to them. Uh, it is surprising, and when I look at my own data, I was surprised to see how many were not followed properly. And I think, uh, you know, there are many reasons why uh, patients may fall, fall through the cracks, uh, your analysis may be done, or follow-up culture and prescription are not done. So that's part of our process. Um, we have uh, instituted uh, a uh, process by which at the time of checkout from the office visit, every patient is given instructions on how to collect the urine specimen, is given a, a urine cup, and um, there is a follow-up on that by our scheduling department uh, who reviews the urinalysis. If a culture is done, also reaches out to the physician and makes sure that a prescription is served when appropriate. Uh, we are early in this process. Uh, we uh, begin to see some uh, uh, results and we'll be glad to share our data with the rest of uh, music uh, once it matures. Thank you again for, uh, for uh, being able to make this presentation. Uh, and I have to stress how uh, much of an impact uh, actionable data can have in a way that is easy to implement in everybody's practice. Thanks again. Thanks, Renee, for that uh, great look at your own clinical practice. Um, I think we could all learn quite a few things from what you described. Uh, and it's just really a testament to the um, uh, stick togetherness that uh, MIU has, and we can all learn from that. So I'm going to spend the next couple of slides trying to put the MIU data into the context of the wider collaborative. I think it'd be pretty easy to sit back and say, yeah, well, that's MIU. That's not my practice. But what I'd like to share with you is that what MIU is experiencing and reporting pretty much is our practice. What I'm plotting here is our performance across the collaborative with regard to preoperative urine testing, so urinalysis or culture. And what you can see here is the uh, variation in music practices ranging from practice A, performing testing in only one in five patients, all the way up to practice AA, which is performing things uniformly. And what you can see plotted is the MIU average, which Renee previously showed of 86%. And what I can tell you is the music average falls below that. So 82% of patients across music are getting preoperative urine testing before ureteroscopy. Similar to MIU, uh, we perform uh, urine cultures when there's a positive urinalysis, 86% of patients, whereas MIU reported 75%. And when we have a positive urinalysis or urine culture read infection, we're treating with antibiotics in the preoperative setting in 82% of patients relative to 71% for MIU. So again, I hope this provides a bit of context for the practice level data that Renee was happy to share 
uh, and lets you know that this certainly is something where I think we can improve further as a collaborative. Now, this is all well and good. Uh, it's great to report these data. It's fascinating and interesting and thought-provoking to even have these data. We're lucky for it. But I think it's also important to try to understand the implications of non-adherence with these guidelines around testing. So if we look at the music data specifically, we have more than 20,000 total ureteroscopy procedures within the registry at this point. 648 patients or 3% required an ED visit or hospitalization for infection. So again, somewhat consistent with the CROAS data I described previously. Interestingly, of those 3%, 14% were not tested, which I think represents a potential missed opportunity to identify those at higher risk for infection. Since I previously described to you that the presence of a preoperative uh, positive urine culture urinalysis is a risk factor for postoperative sepsis or infection. So what can we do going forward? We've identified a potential quality of care concern, outlined some of the uh, implications of that. We've heard some great things from Renee about how they're doing that locally within MIU, and I challenge you all to do that. But what levers can we pull from the coordinating center statewide to try to improve this? I think this represents a quality of care concern, and one of the levers that we can pull is financial. So we currently are proposing this as a population-based VBR metric for the 2023 reporting period. At present, we are testing with either a urinalysis or culture in 82% of patients, and we are moving towards a target of 90%. I think this is achievable, and I think that this will be associated with tangible benefits to patients. One way that I think that we can achieve this goal and improve the quality of the data within the Music Rocks registry as a whole is to listen to Dr. Monty's words as he left us indicating that templating may serve a purpose going forward in surgical decision-making and certainly providing ready data for our abstractors. I hope that there's a show of hands or recognition around the computers today that we are using certain templates to aid our abstractors in finding data. One of the ones that I use most frequently is the ureteroscopy and shockwave operative template. You may uh, recognize many of these fields here indicating whether a stone was found, whether the procedure was elective or urgent, stone size, uh, uh, basketing strategies, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to propose that because we all work at disparate clinics, potentially far away from main clinics, and that our abstractors are sifting through you know, dozens and dozens of records at many hospitals, that we could make everyone's job easier by adding to our operative templates whether or not a preoperative urinalysis uh, was resulted, either positive, negative, or not done, and similarly, whether a preoperative urine culture was done, positive, negative, or not done. I think this would really benefit us going forward as it would streamline the uh, ability of the abstractors to find these data. And it also gives us an opportunity to reflect uh, operatively uh, and certainly be looking at things preoperatively to ensure that in most cases, these tests are done. So in conclusion, uh, to provide some summary and future directions, our goal is to maximize quality for our patients by mitigating infection. I think that guideline adherence uh, serves to protect pa patients and us as providers uh, to ensure that we're uh, putting as much behind um, efforts to maintain and collect this data as we can so that we can limit infectious complications for patients. I'd also like to make a plug for ensuring optimal data collection. 
the registry is robust and that's uh, in no part uh, uh, or in no small part due to the fact that we have hardworking abstractors, but we can make their jobs easier by standardizing documentation and help support data fidelity. And that's where the templates will really fall into place. And then finally, we'd like to propose this as a VBR measure with a current rate of preoperative testing of 82% moving towards a target rate of 90%. Overall, the flow would be that preoperative urine testing being performed uh, along with provider uh, templates, first and foremost leads to better quality care for patients and hopefully minimizing infectious risk, which we can follow going forward. And I think these real world data uh, across music, like anything that we do, will hopefully serve to inform some guideline creation and help us understand the impl implications of, of not adhering to these guidelines moving forward. So with that, I thank you for your participation in the pre-recorded aspect of the webinar. And now we're gonna move to a live uh, um, question and answer section. Uh, so please stick around and thanks for your attention. Right. I don't know. All right, well, um, we're going to move forward now with uh, Rock's live Q&A. Thanks uh, to all the participants and the questions that are streaming in. And I just would like to say in lieu of Dr. Ghani's closing remarks, what uh, interactive discussion we've had thus far, which is pretty tremendous given the virtual format. Um, so um, I think one of the questions that we can start with, and I'd pose this to you, Kershid, and you, Renee, uh, which came from the Q&A, is what's your general practice with regard to timing of urinalysis or culture before your ureteroscopy? What about you, Renee? Yeah, we had a discussion about this, and you know, we use in thirty days. Um, like I said earlier, when the patient checks out, he's given he or she is given a, a specimen cup. <clears throat> the scheduling department now boards the patient for surgery and contacts the patient directly and reminds them to bring a year into uh, the office. Within 30 days, we recommend to be done, ideally between seven and 15 days, a week or two ahead, so that we have time to review the urine, you know, within two weeks, ideally. Uh, order a urine culture if appropriate, and then start antibiotics. Uh, but we have settled for 30 days. Logistically, probably makes more sense. It depends on the practice. So that's, that's our goal. 30 days, ideally, one or two weeks before. Kershid? Yeah, this is a good, uh, good point here. The AUA guidelines don't specify an exact time point, you know, so it just says that your analysis should be done. Uh, like you, Renee, we, at Michigan Medicine, we've been doing 30 days for, and we at Michigan Medicine are requiring our, all our patients to have a urine culture. Uh, and I know we're going to hear from Trudy Reichs, who's one of our nursing staff, about this uh, uh, as well in the panel. Uh, so 30 days is the threshold for us at Michigan Medicine. I also practice at the VA, and at the VA also we've been using a 30-day uh, threshold, where also the VA is uh, has been requiring urine cultures and not urinalysis. And that has uh, no relationship with the policy at Michigan Medicine. It was an independent policy in place even before I uh, came on staff there. Yeah, we, we, we consider that. We don't want to, you know, go overboard and we decided not to for different reasons, maybe cost, uh, whatever it may be. Um, but when the patient drops the urine sample, uh, a nurse practitioner or whoever is available will review, do a urine analysis. And then if the urine is positive for nitrates, 
uh, automatically orders a urine culture and notifies the physician. Um, and certainly is nothing wrong with getting everybody a culture. I think that's a discussion that you know, needs to be made. Yeah, I mean, so just kind of segueing from that comment, I think one of the interesting aspects of the survey was that there's broad agreement that urinalysis or culture should be done, right? 92% of urologists said yes. Um, but when we asked the question, when do you get a urine culture, it was mixed, right? Some said all the time. The majority said only if the UA is positive. To that UA positivity thing, though, and, and this is something that we've moved towards, um, not in small part due to some of the QI stuff that you've already mentioned, Renee, internally within Michigan Medicine is one of the bugs that we're seeing more frequently is enterococcus, um, which is not typically causing the UAs to reduce nitrate to nitrite. And so it can be a missed bug there. And so we had a rash of enterococcus sepsis, which moved us towards uniform urine cultures or requesting that kind of like Kirsten said in the VA. So it's something to consider. And as we continue to collect data in this space, it'd be interesting to see if there's a difference uh, amongst those that got a urinalysis versus those that got a culture. That's the thing that we're often thinking of. Um, and that's what that's what uh, can often nail people with a seemingly negative UA. Um, so uh, I wanted to kind of engage Trudy now that she's got her camera flipped around. Thanks for joining us, Trudy. Uh, Trudy is one of our stellar clinical care coordinators um, in endourology. Um, two questions for you, Trudy. You heard Renee's uh, protocol, which is that patients drop a urine sample and they leave clinic, uh, and then the schedulers are following up. In our model, um, uh, we leave a lot of that to you guys. Um, so how are you guys negotiating that with patients? And the second part of the question is, how are you doing that when patients are being seen as virtual visits? And we've kind of moved to about 30 to 40% of our patients being virtual, where you may not be able to rely on a, a protocol like that. Correct. Um, yes, it can be a challenge. I mean, there are, when, when it's a virtual visit, I mean, it's nice when they're in clinic because you can just get it done and be done and you don't really, there's really that much of a follow-up other than just making sure it's a negative urine culture. When we have people um, that we see virtually, you know, it, it's challenging because not, unfortunately not everybody comes to U of M to get their urine cultures done. So it can be very difficult to follow up on those. Um, we do it just because our surgery schedules are, as you know, are, are very overwhelmed with their work right now. But it, it's it's hard to, and it's also hard to make sure that the people, the patients are getting them done in a timely manner. That's another big problem that we hit. I don't think that they realize how important it is to get these done in a timely manner. So. It's, it's a challenge and it takes a lot of follow-up phone calls, um, a lot of rework to make sure everybody's ready for surgery as far as their urine cultures go. So just by way of sharing, uh, Trudy is, is primarily Kirsch's clinical care coordinator. Um, our other, uh, uh, Brianna's on vacation, and she would mention that I do most of my own work and I don't involve the clinical care coordinator. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, they, they do the heavy lifting we've heard from Brian Lane's team uh, and their PAs, how helpful they are. So we're super fortunate to have uh, Trudy join us. Uh, Trudy, you brought up a really interesting point, and this kind of, I want to pivot back to Renee and Kershid. So 8% of our respondents, if we believe the survey, said that they don't routinely get a urinalysis or culture. Trudy was mentioning how patients may not understand how important it is. 
what do you two physicians do in the situation where you show up on the day of surgery and pre-op and you're looking through the chart and you kind of have that moment where you realize that there's no urine testing for the patient? Renee, I'll let you go first, please. Yes, that's really important because it happens no matter how hard you try. Uh, I just had an experience two weeks ago with a patient who was institutionalized. We couldn't get the adequate culture before, and sure enough, uh, we had a you know sepsis episode afterwards. Um, what to do? We had a conversation among ourselves, and there are a couple of common sense approaches that you know we are going to consider. One is if you have the availability of having a dipstick in the uh, pre-op area in the hospital, that was a suggestion. You can screen the urine like that. Uh, clearly, if the urine looks cloudy, it's abnormal, then I think the prudent thing to do is to you know, abort the procedure if possible. Um, but I, I don't know that there's a good answer for that. And there, were, there are patients that for one reason or another will not follow protocol. Um, we're all very busy. Patients want to get their stones taken care of. They want their stents out ASAP. And there's a pressure to go ahead and you know, proceed as scheduled. But, you know, again, I, I, it looks like, uh, you know, talking to the patient, looking if uh, the patient had a history of previous infections and uh, no culture or urinalysis was done. Um, if you have the availability of a dipstick, that's reasonable, or maybe err on the side of caution and come back another day. Um, we don't have a definite answer, but those are some other common sense approaches we're considering. And I would echo, you know, what Renee is saying, which is, you know, it's individualized. You you discuss it with the patient and you discuss what those risk factors are. Now, it's funny, Renee, two weeks ago, I had a similar situation where the patient didn't have a urinalysis uh, at all. And uh, uh, but had said that they had had a test at an outside facility a week before and it was negative, but nobody could find the result. So we just, you know, I had a discussion with the patient and I said, you know, you, 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 there is a risk of sepsis in this scenario. Uh, but, you know, we worked out that for her, her pain was significant. She wanted to go ahead. She understood the risk. Some of these patients have had kidney stone surgery before. So those may be somewhat easier to counsel than those who've never had a kidney stone operation. So we made an individualized decision. I put it in the records and, and we proceeded. And, you know, she was fine, nothing happened, but, it, you know, something could have happened, but as long as the family and the patient understand, and if there's any concern and you're apprehensive, this is a patient who is sick, significant comorbidities, always, sometimes the safest thing is not to proceed, you know, and there's, there's you know, that might be the other thing. The other thing to remember is that patients with urethral stones who may present in this scenario, and they do have an infection, maybe the thing to do with them is place a stent, you know, because they're infected and obstructed. So that's a different decision-making. But I, I do see that, Casey, when you're looking at the music registry and what you've seen MIU data, Renee, is that there are going to be a few scenarios where we aren't going to get this testing done to the best of our abilities, to the best of Trudy's abilities. So there's going to be a small proportion that cannot, but is can 90% get them? I, I think so, right? I think 90% seems like a reasonable target. I would agree. I mean, that's, that's an achievable number there. So I want to hit a couple of the, the questions from the Q&A, and thanks to everybody for streaming these in. Um, 
This is a great question from Naveen uh, Kachru, um, who asks, um, are people repeating urine cultures after treatment for a positive urinalysis or culture prior to the procedure? So throwing out a situation, you've got a patient that's got an E. coli UTI when you see them in the office, you don't schedule their URS for two to three weeks later and you treat them. Are you getting a repeat culture to document treatment? Um, I'd answer first, just briefly, it's all about timing for me. Um, most of my stones, at least more of my stones post COVID have been kind of acute cases. So I'll see them in the office and often treat them within a week. So if they're not obstructed and I'm deviating to stenting them to make sure that they're, you know, not going to get sick from an obstructing stone and, a, and, um, a UTI, I'll often just start them on antibiotics roughly five to seven days before their surgery. Um, and, uh, um, uh, assume, uh, for, for right or for wrong, that that's adequate treatment. What about you guys? I will let Renee go first because whatever you say, Renee, I'm going to say that I do exactly what you do. Smart, smart. <laughs> uh, I, I take the same approach. I mean, if I have a culture proven or culture directed uh, infection that uh, is covered appropriately and the patient doesn't have any symptoms at the day of presentation, I think it makes sense to proceed as long as the patient has been continuously on antibiotics up to that day. Um, I mean, yeah. I would agree. Yeah, and I, I think you said it well, Casey, right? Timing. I, if if we have the time and Trudy knows this, if, if, it's, if it's three, four weeks away from surgery, we'll treat, I will usually treat and I will repeat because my worry is if they have a resistance, you know, and it's not completely, then I will put them on three to five days of antibiotics before the surgery as well as an extra mitigation. So, but in those where it's closer to the surgery, I will, I will give that course of seven days. And then, in a, and I think that's another aspect, just trying to keep them on it until surgery and beyond. And I, I tell you, I started off in the business very parsimonious with my antibiotic therapy. And now I, I'm, I, I do more than I ever did. And that's because I'm sort of, I guess I'm anxious about sepsis, Casey. You know, it really, it makes me anxious. Yeah, and we, we made the cardinal... Oh, go ahead, please, Renee. No, if I may add, I mean, one thing that we've been doing also at MIU is for these more complex, uh, you know, uh, infections, we're using a, a UTM, you know, uh, genetic uh, uh, directed uh, testing. And as we all know, you know, stone patients can have a multibacterial flora and uh, a regular culture may miss a, a second uh, bacteria that could be resistant. So I think we should consider doing these uh, DNA-directed uh, uh, cultures. And I think we, we will be better able to cover with uh, antibiotics. So a question just came in that kind of gets at the other angle, right? We said that we had an administrative or clerical issue and you didn't have a urinalysis or culture, but what about those urgent cases that come in? So you know, we classify cases in the registry as urgent or elective. So I think what this is getting at is that urgent person that comes in, right? If they're infected, you're going to stent them, right? Uh, that's that's the appropriate way to go. But what about the urgent case that comes in? Um, what you know? How are we treating those folks? I, I would posit that these people have at least had a urinalysis um, uh, with um, micro in the emergency department or wherever we're seeing them. My general practice is if and this gets at another question, what are we calling a positive UA? In the registry, we're considering that nitrite positive. So leukesterase alone does not merit a positive UA. But if I'm seeing a patient in the ER that I'm considering same-day treatment, if they are 
not nitrite positive, then I would consider proceeding. If they're nitrite positive, I'm considering that an infection uh, until proven otherwise. And that patient urgently for me would get a stent and later ureteroscopy. Kershid and Renee. Same uh, Casey, but it, I'll proceed just like you. But then as I proceed, if they're nitrite negative and I'm putting the wire and I get a gush of, you know, dirty urine, then, you know, I'll take that culture, we'll place a stent. But I'll just routinely do cultures from the operating room in this scenario in case there's an issue in, a, in the next few days. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, if I'm, if I'm anxious, I may actually put them on post-operative antibiotics to be, to be cautious for a few days. Renee? Oh, I, I would agree with that. You know, if the urine, regardless of what, what the urinalysis says, if the urine looks dirty, you know, it, you, know you have to use your own judgment. And, you know, emergency stones, well, what is an emergency stone that can be treated with a stent? I mean, the majority will. So you can always delay uh, by placing a stent. Um, so, no, I would agree with that. If, if, uh, if the urine looks dirty uh, or the patient doesn't look like it's uh, the right time to, to proceed with a definitive therapy, just drain the, the system and come back. So I said the word stent at some point in this discussion. And so now all the questions are coming in related to stents, further proving that that's like the most interesting thing to music endourologists. <laughs> um, one of the questions that we got about stents is how are we judging a urinalysis in the setting of a stent? How, how do you proceed in that case, Renee? Well, we're using the nitrate uh, as the guideline, but you brought up a very important question that not all infections are nitrate producing. So, um, you know, what, what maybe we should look at that, but nitrate is what we were looking at. Would that be a situation where you'd consider a culture over your analysis? Cause I'm thinking to myself, these patients might be on pyridium at what as well, which makes the nitrite, um, essentially unreadable. Um, uh, I, I, you know, for, for those that are the urinalysis only or urinalysis only of signs of infection, a lot of the things with a stent can masquerade as infectious symptoms, right? The bladder spasms, the flank pain. And so do you ever uh, insist on cultures or are you still following just urinalysis and stented patients? Oh, no. What, what our guidelines call is to have a, a positive nitrate culture, but that doesn't mean that a negative nitrate culture, uh, urine should not be cultured. So that's where judgment comes in. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I'm going to try to touch on a couple more questions in the couple minutes we have left. Uh, a question came in about how we're managing um, uh, antibiotics in the post-operative period, um, especially in those patients that might have a stent on a dangle. Um, Kershid or Renee, are you guys giving a one-time dose of antibiotics at the time of stent removal uh, for the patient at home? What's your practice there? I, I'm going to let Trudy answer what the practice is for when we do stent removal in the clinic. Yeah, so stent removal at the clinic, we always give them just a one-time dose of an antibiotic based on um, our protocol, any allergies they may or may not have. Um, but everybody gets a one dose of antibiotic if they're not already on something post-operatively. But for string removal, you know, I haven't been advocating that. And I, and I don't know if you do that in your practice, Casey, or whether Renee's doing that. Every time we do a cystoscopic uh, stand removal, we give antibiotics. Um, I'm not a believer in the strings personally, so okay. uh, I cannot 
comment very much on that. Uh, but everyone who gets a stem remover uh, in the office gets a one dose of antibiotics for sure. Um, a couple other questions that we got. Um, one was related to, and this will probably take us to the end, is what our thoughts are on stone culture routinely in the operating room. So, Renee, can you take that one? I think definitely uh, if it's a PCNL, because you have a larger, you have a good sample um, and higher risk of sepsis, I routinely perform a, a culture. Um, Ureteroscopic, I haven't been doing that. And I think it's because of the, uh, it's a different group of patients, the majority of them. Um, and again, these patients have, like we have been saying all along, they have been screened, they have their urines, they have their cultures and so on. But for PCNL, I think the data shows that, uh, yes, a significant number will have more than one pathogen. And uh, I think it is it, prudent to go ahead and culture the stones. I think the only situation where I would do it in a ureteroscopy is those rare patients. And I often think, again, enterococcus, because it's, if you look at the data, one of the more commonly colonized uh, stones. Um, if a patient's having surgery for recurrent UTIs in the setting of stones, I'll often send a piece of the stone for culture just to document to myself that, yeah, I might have helped that person or not. If the culture's negative, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the stones weren't the source during URS. But um, I'd just like to thank again uh, all the people on the call, in particular our panelists here and Trudy for taking time out of a busy day and Renee for taking time out of a busy clinical day. Um, everyone's questions in the Q&A, this has been an uh, incredible session um, and an incredible webinar so far. So I'm gonna turn things over to Dr. Ghani who's going to provide some closing remarks. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Dow. And That's crazy. Thank you, uh, Dr. Frontera. And thank you so much, Trudy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great, great, great session. Thank you. So I'd, I'd like to uh, just um, um, provide some key takeaways and to thank everybody uh, in the um, collaborative webinar today taking part and also all the questions that have been coming through the chat. Uh, this was an uh, experiment today to see if we could run the meeting in the afternoon. And so uh, any feedback that you have for us, whether you like the webinars, uh, in the afternoon or evening, do do let us know and email the coordinating center. Uh, I, I've i really enjoyed all the all the talks and the discussion. Uh, we kicked it off with uh, Dr. George and Dr. Samergian speaking about um, radical prostatectomy and the new uh, metrics that we're now going to be tracking, and especially around DVT. And we found in this poll that we did in this webinar that forty percent of surgeons don't provide any uh, DVT. Uh, thromboprophylaxis after radical prostatectomy. And so music is going to be start collecting this data. And we hope in the next few years, we might start to be able to unpack this and provide better guidance to our uh, physicians and our patients in the state. And then we had a really fascinating discussion on opioid free pathway and how to reduce pain after radical prostatectomy. And Dr. Jaffrey told us all about the TAP block. Uh, and I think this is something that we're going to try and encourage in music. And I think pain is a really important feature, which also featured uh, a lot uh, in the um, kidney talk that was led by uh, Dr. Rogers and Dr. Butani. And we were fortunate to have the insights of uh, our patient advocate in the kidney session who also uh, told us how important post-operative pain. And that's seen in the music registry data where a lot of patients are visiting the ED after partial nephrectomy and after radical nephrectomy for pain. So we're going to start to look into that and see what interventions that we can develop. 
And then regarding radical nephrectomy, we saw that ileus was also a major reason for readmission and for partial nephrectomy bleeding. And I'm going to come back to the partial nephrectomy thing in, in just a moment. So some exciting new data from the kidney group. And I hope, uh, you know, in the years to come, uh, Michigan will be the safest place to have a partial nephrectomy and a radical nephrectomy. So kudos to the kidney team for doing that work. We had a, a really uh, nice session led by Dr. Dow on urine testing, and we heard the experience of MIU and also the music-wide data. And we are now going to uh, ask in music that we try and improve our testing rates before ureteroscopy. Uh, we're going to set a target of 90%, and we're fortunate that Blue Cross Blue Shield and Michigan are going to provide a value-based reimbursement payment if we can hit those targets. And um, the other ask that we... Uh, request is that in your templates, when you're doing ureteroscopy, if you can actually put in whether you performed a urinalysis or a urine culture and the result. Today's meeting has been recorded and will be available on the website. And it's also available as a podcast uh, through the Apple and uh, Google podcast channels. And the information is here. If you're not able to catch it, you can also go back to it at any stage. And then on the 21st of this month, uh, we will have a uh, partial nephrectomy skills workshop that music is uh, running. Uh, and we're fortunate to have a keynote speaker, Dr. Bayani, um, who is a renowned expert in robotic partial nephrectomy and will be uh, uh, joined by other music surgeons. And we're gonna learn a lot on that skill session, multiple videos, lots of tips and tricks on how to reduce complications after uh, partial nephrectomy as well as uh, positive surgical margin rate. And so look forward to that. And I encourage everyone to join that. It's at 6 p.m. on Thursday. And uh, it's also an, an, a, a webinar that we'll be hosting internationally with attendance from uh, attendees all around the world. So uh, I want to thank you for joining the, the afternoon session with us. Um, we hope that our next meeting in February will be an in-person meeting and we look forward to interacting and dialoguing with you in person and networking with you. Thank you for all that you do to make Michigan the best place in the world to have urologic care. Thank you and have a nice weekend.